Scour the brown tower, you're drowning Howrigans. Welcome to the Blind Boy Podcast. If this is your first podcast, please consider listening to an earlier episode to familiarise yourself with the lore of this podcast. It was a gorgeous day today. I cycled into work at 6am. It was everything I wanted from a summer morning. The horizon was a chalky purple. With all the moisture in the air, there was a real honesty to the sun. It wasn't hiding behind a cloud or penetrating any excessive humidity. It was just... What's the crack? I'm the sun. I'm doing what I'm supposed to be doing. The song Have a Nice Day by the Stereophonics came onto my Spotify. And I listened to it unironically. I'd normally skip past that song. Just, I'm of a certain age. I'm of a certain age where, through no fault of their own, it's very difficult to listen to the Stereophonics. It's Celtic Tiger banker music. Big baggy bootcut jeans. Pink fuchsia shirts. Pint bottles of Bulmers. The smell of farts. Being lied to about the economy. Being given a mortgage that you can never afford. The music of the Stereophonics is second only to Life is a Roller Coaster by Ronan Keating for eliciting those exact, specifically vicious memories in Irish geriatric millennials. It's very unfair. The Stereophonics, of course, are incredible songwriters. The songs are amazing. They just got played too much, played in too many adverts. But when I was cycling to work this morning at 6am, thrilled with myself that I'm experiencing the vitality of a summer morning, when Have a Nice Day by the Stereophonics came on, I let it play and I listened to it unironically and I agreed with the lyrics and I went, yeah, I am going to have a nice day. I will have a nice day. So loads of you were looking for updates on the bard shit situation in Limerick City. If you've been listening to the last two podcasts, you'll know that I dedicated an entire podcast to the history of bard shit because there's a street in Limerick City that's covered in the bard shit of starlings, starling shit, and the whole place stinks as a result. So Limerick City Council listened to this podcast, and they responded, and I'm now involved in a public feud about bard shit with Limerick City Council. So that's what I'm doing with my life currently. That's what I can put onto my CV. I'm having a public feud with Limerick City Council about bard shit. So I read about it in the paper. It said Limerick City and County Council are refuting claims of a popular Limerick podcaster about a bad smell on the streets of Limerick City. They refute the claims, but then they go on to admit that, like, it's a serious problem. They publicly clarified that a hot water sweeper which uses water heated to 70 degrees is used to clean the street and to remove the barred droppings. And what I will say, because I don't want to be too harsh on Limerick City Council, there's been a lot of rain But since I put out the podcast two weeks ago, there has been a noticeable decrease in the stench of bard shit in Limerick City. So they appear to be really taking it seriously and trying. So fair play to them. My favourite part about the whole thing is they had it... (laughs) This... (laughs) Limerick City Council had a conversation about my suggestion... That they dress the statue of Terry Wogan up as a bird of prey to frighten the starlings away. So as part of this public feud, I need to make it clear to Limerick City Council. I'm not serious about that. <laughs> That's a joke. 
that's part of my fictional universe. I suggested that we dress up Terry Wogan's statue as a hawk because it's a visually arresting image. Actually, no, I said we should dress him up as an osprey. It's a visually arresting image and it fits nicely within my, my fictional universe, the fictional universe of this podcast. But if you want to do it, I mean, work away. Please do. I mean, as a piece of performance art. Yes, please dress up the Terry Wogan statue as a gigantic hawk. I'd love to see that. I don't think it's going to frighten away any starlings, but for the sheer insanity of it and the performance art aspect, please dress up Terry Wogan as a gigantic osprey. So for this week's podcast, I have a wonderful chat for ye. Um, A chat that I've been sitting on and waiting for the right time to release it. A few months ago in Vicker Street, I had a wonderful conversation with a biodiversity expert, someone who, he's been a guest on this podcast before, his name is Kali Ennis. And Kali is fascinated with frogs and insects and biodiversity and he's just an unbelievably passionate person about what he does. And anytime I want to speak about the climate or biodiversity, I want to speak about it in a way that's empowering and hopeful and proactive rather than frightening. I like to speak about it in a way that's inspiring and to speak to people who speak about it in a way that inspires action because the news cycle at the moment is quite bleak. So this was an incredibly enjoyable chat that I had with Kali Ennis, biodiversity expert. He works up in Trinity College. We speak about frogs, newts, wildflowers, building ponds, holding your local council to account around issues such as biodiversity and nature. We speak about venomous insects. We speak about snakes. This is a long conversation. It's, geez, I think it's over 90 minutes long, but I couldn't edit it down. We had too much fun. We had too much crack. It was a really beautiful night. It was a lovely night inside in Vicker Street. It was a Tuesday night or a Monday night podcast, so wonderful energy in the room and everyone left feeling inspired because Kali is an inspiring person. Follow him on social media, Kali Ennis, and also he has his own podcast about biodiversity called The Critter Shed. At the start of this interview, I just read the audience a new short story, which is about a person who rescues a donkey, but I left in my response to it because it was relevant to the theme of the chat that I had with Kali. <clears throat> That's a new story from... I'm writing a collection of short stories and the, the name of the book of the collection is Topographia Hibernica because there was a book written, there's a manuscript from the 11th century called Topographia Hibernica. I've done a podcast on it. It was a manuscript written by the, by the Brits, by the Normans when they just invaded Ireland, right? Now, it's a, it's a hilarious book. It's amazing. It, what it reminds me of is... Do you remember when uh, the US and Britain was invading Iraq? So they come up with all that WMD nonsense and they come up with a lot of lies to justify the invasion, yeah? Well, Britain did that in the 11th century in Ireland, or the 12th century, sorry. They sent a fella to Ireland called Gerald of Wales and they said to Gerald, he was a monk, go around Ireland, right? And just write this huge book about what Ireland is like 
but make it nuts. Make them look insane so we can go to the Pope and say they need some civilizing. So Jared did this, and the book is called Topographia Hibernica. And it's, I love it. It's amazing. It's, it's hilarious. But what Jared did is that he made, he reduced Irish culture. He took the humanity out of it and made us appear like animals. So, for instance, he wrote in the book, when the king of Limerick was being crowned, coronated as the king, he said that what the, the, the kingship ritual in Ireland is that the prospective king fucks his horse, then <laughs> he gets a big bath of hot water, and the, the horse that he just fucked, him and the horse climb into the hot water, and they put a fire under it, so it becomes like a half-human, half-horse soup. And then, while him and the horse are having soup made out of themselves, he fucks and kills the horse at the same time, and then eats like this dead horse sex soup, and then they make him king. <laughs> Which is brilliant, like, in fairness. It's not true. And then he said that, like, the women of Ireland, he said the women of Ireland at any point can turn into rabbits, right? They can transform into rabbits. And when the women of Ireland transform into rabbits, they chase after pregnant women and jump up and suck all the milk out of their tits. <laughs> and he said that up in Donegal, people eat a type of bird that grows on trees. And then he had a bishop in Wicklow who's married to a goat who stands on two feet and the bishop walks around shifting the goat with tongues. And it's this... It's an amazing fucking piece of work that was written in the 11th century. And I love it because it's mad. But the Pope at the time was an English Pope, Pope Adrian. So, and as well as that, what Gerald did is he took a lot of stuff from Irish mythology. It, basically what he did was he, the, the Normans, who were the Brits, went to the English Pope and said, have you seen what the Irish have done with the Bible? Have you seen what they're doing? And then the Pope said, civilize them, invade them. And it all started that way with this book of lies, like WMDs. So my collection of short stories, which is, has the same name, Topographia Hibernica, I wanted to be in an intertextual dialogue with that book from the 11th century, for it to be decolonial. And what I'm doing is each one of my stories contains an animal or nature of some description. So I'm trying to rehumanize Irish people by bringing animals back as a helping character or something that challenges us, but also not just for it to be decolonial, but for it to have relevance in terms of the biodiversity collapse that's happening right now. Do you get me? So that's what I want to do. And it's, it's the first time I've written a short story collection that has kind of a unified theme. So I'm looking forward to that and uh, the 40,000 words that I have to write in the next three months. Um, but the guest that I have tonight is, qu it's quite, is quite apt uh, in terms of the theme of that story. His name is Kali Ennis, and he's an expert on frogs. Kali? I didn't know how else to introduce you. <laughs> it's a fair enough way of introducing me. Can you bring the mic a little bit closer there? So there you go. How's that? You comfortable with that? Yeah, very comfortable. Okay. Yeah. I'm just after realizing, because you've been on this podcast before, like I've interviewed you twice. Twice. 
and I've had you back because we just have so much crack. We do. We have a good laugh. But I'm only after realising as I read that story out, there's parts of you inspired that. Thank you very much. Do you know little I haven't bits? had a donkey in the back of my car, but... Yeah. Of course, <laughs> you haven't had that. Not yet. <laughs> there's um, a line in that story where he's talking about his dad. And he's saying, my dad was the type of man who would bring all sorts of animals home or put himself out of pocket to help animals and wouldn't be able to... And that's you. Yeah. Like, you're, you're not... You, it, it could be anything, man. I'd say you'd hop over the fence of a zoo if a zebra was in trouble. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, I, look, you get a soft spot for creatures that you find, you know, interesting or fascinating. And, and my kind of uh, interest is in the less loved creatures of the world. Uh, they don't get any credit because they're not furry, they're not, you know, they're not cute to a lot of people, but I find them amazing. I think that they're so underappreciated. I think that a lot of people don't know that how important they are to us on a purely And we're talking level. frogs, slugs, yep. the things we, don't, we want to pretend don't exist. Yeah, or we don't know exist. Most people, you know, I think for a lot of people, maybe out here, you, you would have, if you were a, a little bit older, kept frog spawn and watch mm -hmm. tadpoles grow as a kid and you probably buzzed off that and that kind of goes away with people but it, I kind of stuck with it over, over years you know I'll give you a, a, more, a more of a proper introduction so Kali is an expert in insects frogs things like that but he started off just as a kid who was fucking around with mud out the back garden just this curiosity yeah. <laughs> um, something that you develop naturally as a passion and what I love about you, Kali, is, oh man, it just, you make it seem so accessible and relatable to me. And, and just following you on social media over the past five years and chatting to you, like you've had a, a measurable impact on my life and how I, I didn't give a fuck about insects before I met you. Like, I, I really didn't. I knew they were there, but I didn't think about them. And I'll give you one example. So you were the first person to turn me onto wildflowers, right? You were the first person to let me know that we have a biodiversity collapse, which means that tiny little insects, fucking uh, grasshoppers, uh, the red fellas with black dots on their ladybugs. <laughs> yeah. They're all disappearing. The flies are disappearing. And you said to me that the tiniest thing you can do is these insects live in meadows and there's no meadows left. So grow a tiny amount of wildflowers. Now I was thinking, ah, come on, Kali, really, that's hardly going to make a fucking difference. So what I did for the laugh about three years ago is the first thing I did was, so I have a tiny patch of grass out the back garden. So I'm mm -hmm. talking six foot, by, six foot by four foot, not a lot, okay? But that's the amount of grass that I have. And the first thing I did, as I said, I'm getting some wildflower seeds. Mm. Now, I made sure, because you'd warned me, when you're buying wildflower seeds, make sure they're legitimate native Irish wildflower. Because yeah. sometimes when you walk into like B&Q or the range, it says wildflower or wildflower, but they're from Poland or something. Yeah, yeah. So I went online. I think it was irishwildflower.ie. It's, it's one dude who's been doing it for years. He sent me a bag of these. And I had my little plot, and I just fucked him there. Yeah, because that's yeah. what would happen. Yeah. And nothing happened the first year. Nothing happened. Then the next year, 2020 lockdown, I start seeing flowers I hadn't seen before. Mm -hmm. So I'm going, oh, that's nice. 
then it progresses and it gets to August and I'm seeing insects I've never seen before in my life. I've got grasshoppers that big that I didn't know existed in Limerick. <laughs> Seriously. Brilliant. Brilliant. I'm seeing spiders that are triangular. <laughs> but everything you told me that it would do and it made me feel incredible because I hate feeling as powerless as I do when it mm. comes to the climate crisis and biodiversity collapse. Yeah. But just to see six foot Irish wildflower and now for the first time in my life, I'm, I'm seeing insects I've never seen before. Like they told each other. Like he, here's, the, here's the first question I'm going to ask you, Collie, right? So I'm living in a housing estate. I don't live in the country. I live in, yeah. in Limerick City. Yeah. How the fuck did grasshoppers know about a six-foot meadow in my back garden? <laughs> They're there. They're looking for places to go. Now, to your point, it's only a small area that you're at there working with. But imagine everybody yeah. on your street did yeah. the same thing or did different things. Somebody doesn't want a meadow, but they'd like a couple of trees. Or just not cut their grass. Yeah, not cut your, let the dandelions grow, put a pond in, which, you know, I'm pond propaganda pushing that all yeah. the time. But like stuff like that, all these small places. And I lived in Tallaght for 16 years and I had a very, very postage stamp garden, but I turned it into a swamp and things just arrived. Like all these creatures, my kids grew oh, up. Oh, do you mean swamp? No, like uh, were you literally going, this is going to be like a swamp? Like <laughs> yeah, I was dressing like Shrek, but um, <laughs> no, I... I, I I basically took out like a massive big pond that took up 50% of the garden. And then I put smaller ones around to give them a variety of real estate, anything that likes water. And water bodies, flat water bodies like that are in short supply and good quality ponds. They're really in short supply. We used to have loads of them, but because of agricultural policies over the years, all those ponds that were there for cattle to, to drink out of are all gone now because it's all modern, efficient. Mm -hmm. and. If you offer a place, if you build it, they will come. I keep saying it. I know it's mm -hmm. cheesy, but it's the truth. And those grasshoppers who showed up to you will be flying about, starving, hungry. Bees are the same. And even a small patch makes a difference. And it does help you in these times where you're hearing all these bad news about the environment, about biodiversity collapse. What can I do? The government's doing feck all. They're doing a lot of like greenwashing. Get out and do it yourself. Get out with your mates, make mm -hmm. a plan, do it yourself. The most impressive thing I've seen over the last five years since we talked has been local communities getting together mm -hmm. and doing stuff. Not the government. Mm -hmm. They talk a good game before they get in, even the Greens, mm -hmm. you know? They talk a good game. I, don't, I think at this stage we don't have to say even the Greens yeah. anymore. I, yeah. I think we know what they're about. Yeah. But <laughs> <laughs> we kind of know. Like, and it's disappointing to me because I had hope. Mm -hmm. You know, you have a lot of hope. You're like, God, we might be able to make a difference now. They're going to pump some money into, into, into good conservation mm -hmm. work. The money's there, but it never reaches the ground level where it needs to go. It's just, it just lost and in the ether. Also, as well, another thing I see, and I usually see it from following yourself, Kali, is every so often you'll show some story where a local city council or county council is after doing something absolutely ridiculous with a hedge or mm. something was it was it tala was there a little bit of a wetland in tala or something was it it was yeah. something that you had helped make and the council came across and flattened it or something yeah so 2018 
Yeah. So I I was I work with the Herpetological Society of Ireland, and we focus. That's frogs. Frogs, newts, lizards. Yeah. Herpes, things that crawl. Yeah, <laughs> it's the Greek word. So, but um, yeah, it's it's weird. We're the herpes squad, but um. <laughs> We, we were working with a lot of Dublin City Council, South Dublin County Council, Dunleary, Ratdown, to try and get ponds into parks because parks aren't biodiverse. They're green deserts. Mm -hmm. They're very fancy green deserts and there's not much there for wildlife. They're mowed within an inch of their life. The trees are cut down because the council are getting uh, afraid of getting sued. Mm -hmm. So it's just, there's nothing there. So our idea was to get some ponds in and they were very receptive to that so part of that was me going out and surveying seeing what's alive and how can we help it mm -hmm. make sense so part of that was i was wandering around tala and there's a place called sean walsh park which is a very kind of you know it's a dog walkers park with a pond and you have a few ducks and swans and it's okay but behind it was a place where they used to dump silt and, and refuge years ago. So over 20 Silt, years... Silt, like that's like a soil type thing. Out of, out of uh, rivers, when they were dredging oh, rivers or yeah, canals, yeah. they'd ship it off to Tala because okay. they won't ship it off to the posh areas. So they, they dumped it in Tala and left it there. And over 20 years, nature took its course. Okay. And this was already a wetland. Did nature like the silt? Oh, oh sure, that's drainage. It sucked it down. It formed onto all these little... I walked into it and I'm like, oh my God. You had all these little areas. You, Like, I went over months going up there and during the frog breeding season. So you didn't... This, this had happened. Nat this has happened. This was naturally there. Wow. It was just that it was left alone. No one went and near it. animals were you now seeing because of this? So loads of frogs, newts. Um, all sorts of invertebrates, dragonflies, tree species of bat, the critically endangered European eel, mad stuff in the middle of town. Like, and when you're eating off each other and working together, uh, yeah. the bat is coming down because he wants this dragonfly. And mm -hmm. wow, okay. And if you stood there, you could see the pyramid of the square. So as Tala built up around it, this thing was just left there like Jurassic Park, and it was yeah. going mental, and it was brilliant. So I went back. To the council, I said, you don't need to spend money on a wetland. You have a wetland. Mm -hmm. The biodiversity officer who was there, beautiful woman, brilliant, mad into nature. Oh, let's roll with this. Put it up the chain. There was talk of a boardwalk getting put in so local schools could use the amenity to go down mm -hmm. with their teachers. And, and now they're learning about biodiversity. They're learning about biodiversity on, yeah. the, on the, f the steps of the yeah. school nearly. So... Part of survey work is you go back throughout the year. Mm -hmm. You go back to catch it up on seasons. Mm -hmm. So I was going back to see the young tadpoles emerge and see how many uh, there were and kind of just get a, a vibe of how well they were doing in that area. And I went back and I walked around the corner and there was like that height of sludge dumped on it. Like just, again, they just took, they were cleaning out some ponds in in some other areas, and they brought it back to Tala, they drove in some trucks, and they dumped it all over and the place. And they flattened it, it was flattened open, it. I saw the... Flattened it. H how does that happen? How does it happen that the workers were like, hadn't been informed, this, is, this area is going to be protected, and they fucked it up? Because of this greenwashing lark that goes on with councils, they'd rather like, get a, a photograph on Twitter with, a, with, a, with okay. a meadow, than actually listen to what the, biodiver the biodiversity officers are 
asking them for or telling them about. Mm -hmm. So that was lost between, there was a miscommunication, that's what they say. And I do believe that. Yeah. I don't think it was malice. I don't think they're like, fuck these frogs. <laughs> no. But frogs and Tala. <laughs> but it's like, why is that going on? And that, that day that it happened was the same day that kids, I don't know if you remember the time where the kids were marching for climate change and mm -hmm. all that sort of mm -hmm. biodiversity loss. I remember when it happened, it was... Partic there was a sting in the tail of it because it was it was like it, this is so dumb. Yeah, I can't. This is what a terrible time for this to happen. Yeah, and and it really kind of it broke my heart because I'd been quite attached to it, and I actually walked away because I only lived around the corner. I was walking away. I was like, ah, oh, I'm done. I'm done with this. You know what I mean? What's the point? And then I got angry, so I rang around a couple of people I've worked with in the media. And um, that went viral as fuck. Yeah, it was on Modern yeah. Ireland the next day, yeah. so it was it was mad, and uh, yeah, it all kicked off. So um, we eventually got some uh, mitigation in. Frogs are back. The place is starting to turn back into a wilderness again. Years later, it's great to go back and see it. I think the councils all over the country have re-evaluated dumping mm -hmm. stuff in the middle of nowhere. Well, what was great about that was. They all got really scared. Yeah. Like, a lot of people looked like absolute dickheads because of that. Yeah, and, and rightly so. that people don't fucking like this, and you will go viral, and you'll look like a fucking prick. If you, do, if you kill a wetlands, people actually do give a shit. Yeah, and it's more and more happening now. You see, especially with social media, as bad as it can be, it's good for calling out councils, calling out mm -hmm. local authorities on... They're Cutting just, down the, hedges, the mad man. stuff they do. Cutting they're down hedges. Stuff. It's crazy. And it's like, you know, they're saying one thing, but they're acting the completely different way if they think they can get away with it. Mm -hmm. You know, and um, it needs to change. We're too wise now. We're too... People out here know, whether you're into it or not, you, you know about it. You know how important boys. This is what I'd like you to speak about, right? Because we, we can't assume that. Because there could be someone in the audience going... Who gives a fuck about frogs? Seriously, like, I, I, I would have been that, yeah. like, uh, five years ago, I would have been, I don't give a shit about a dragonfly. Yeah. I, I would have assumed that you're doing this because you think they're beautiful insects. And then I spoke to you, and it's like, actually, no, this is really important. And it's not just about the beauty of nature. Why are frogs important? Why are dragonflies important than bats? In Ireland, in Tala. We, <laughs> in Tala, <laughs> look, we need, we're part, whether we like it or not, we're sitting here in our lovely cities and it, it all is very distant from, from us. But we're all part of the food web, whether we like it or not. That's it. And once we start to lose, especially like the likes of invertebrates, like if we were to disappear tomorrow, the world will go on. Yeah. No bother. It's what I love about The Last of Us. Yeah. Did you watch that? Yeah, it was amazing. It was great. But yeah. what my favorite thing about The Last of Us, and they do it even better in the video game, is society has collapsed, and then nature is like, brilliant. <laughs> it's such a beautiful world. Yeah. The buildings have fallen down, but there's moss everywhere, and there's fucking wildlife loves it. Yeah, and, that, and that's the way it would be if, if we were to disappear. But if invertebrates, for example, like all your bugs, all your insects, your flies, everything, if they disappear, everything collapses. Mm -hmm. Now, we're quite clever as a species. We probably build some kind of algal gel factories and we'd be surviving off that. But what a shit world to be in. Mm -hmm. 
You know what I mean? What a, mm -hmm. what a crappy existence that's going to be. You know, and, and apart from like just surviving in general, but like everybody loves getting out to the countryside and seeing mm -hmm. stuff and, you know what I mean? And, and, and just getting that connection to nature, whether you live or sit here or not, going down to your local park is amazing. But your, your local park would be so much better if it was managed for wildlife. The first time I really noticed it, Collie, um, as, as in, so the thing with Ireland is, like we do have our cities, but we're, we're quite, we're green. There's a lot of vegetation in the country. I went to San Francisco, right? Roast and hot. Yeah. And now San Francisco's fucking massive. So you're talking concrete for ages. And trees, there was a tree there, there was a tree there. That was it. Yeah. And surrounded by concrete. And I didn't notice it while I was in the city of San Francisco. Only when I took a day trip up to where the redwoods are in the yeah. forest. Yeah. So I'm in San Francisco. It's horrible. It's rotten. I'm not really noticing this. I get in the bus. The bus is air conditioned. That's all right. And then I get to the forest. And I feel like I can drink the air. Yeah. That I'm like, oh, that's what this is. I didn't notice the utter absence of nature in the city. Mm -hmm. My brain told me, it's too hot. It's not nice. You're grumpy. It's like, no, 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 no. I'm in the forest now. And it's like, <gasps> I can breathe. And yeah. I felt it. I take it for granted a bit in Ireland because in fairness, the air quality is probably better Good, than San yeah, Francisco. Yeah. But when I was there with those two opposites, it scared the living fuck out of me. Yeah. And if we keep going the way we're going, we'll end up like that. Yeah. That's the simple fact of it. And big cities can exist that are in, in touch with nature. Singapore is a great example of that. Yeah, they're doing brilliantly. Blow your mind. The, they have fucking ivy climbing up buildings and it's a beautiful it's mad. thing. It's mad. I walked, I was like, my They'll God. They have a wetland in the middle of a city. In like. the middle of the city. They have yeah. streams going along with little frogs breeding in. I was in heaven. I was like, this is amazing. Well, you saw it in real life. Happy days, yeah. It was I great. saw I, photographs. I yeah, thought, I thought, really good. I saw some photographs of Singapore and what they were doing. I thought someone had made it in Photoshop. Yeah, it's crazy. Like, they've they living walls on, mm -hmm. like, all the big overpasses and everything. They have trees that link up so wildlife can use them as corridors. Mm -hmm. They planned this out. Why is Singapore doing that and we aren't? Because they, they had, back in the day, they decided that, well, we're going to be building up with a lot of people living in small little mm -hmm. gaffs, apartments or flats or whatever. So we're going to have to give them a bit of nature around. So they planned in advance for this. Mm -hmm. So every apartment block has a lovely green space mm -hmm. with a bit of water. Then they have all the links with the trees. Mm -hmm. you, you still have that freshness in the air. They appreciate nature. It's a, it's a cultural thing as well. So that's, that's what I'm trying to get at because so I'm, I'm working towards something at the moment just to kind of... So you notice I'm speaking more and more about Irish mythology on the podcast the past year in particular. So from what I'm looking at and, for, and from... I'm after getting obsessed with Irish mythology, right? Right. It's great. I think that myth, like all human cultures have mythology. I think that mythology is like the fruiting body of the human unconscious. But I also think that mythology is what keeps us part of biodiversity. H humans are animals. We're fucking animals, right? But we're the only animals that have language and the ability to hold ideas outside of ourselves and to swim in a sea of language and, and communicate via culture. We're the animal that has that. And I think mythology exists to keep us in harmony. Now, here's the reason that I'm thinking this. 
if you take Ireland, for instance, we were an oral culture for years, right? Mm -hmm. Before Patrick came here and gave us Latin, we were mostly, our stories were passed around via word of mouth. There were owen stones and stuff like that, but the average people, our stories were preserved using only words that you couldn't write down. So what that meant was, if you want to map your world, every single fucking thing has to have a story. So there's no such thing as a tree. That tree is magical. And underneath that tree, the roots go into the other world. And then, because it's in the other world, there's hazelnuts on this tree, and they contain the knowledge of the other world. And when those hazelnuts drop into a pond, and a salmon eats this hazelnut, then this becomes the salmon of knowledge. And then a mountain isn't just a mountain. The mountain is the daughter of, of a god or a goddess. Mm. And when you speak this way about the landscape, you're mapping it through stories, but it's also something that you become fearful of. You can't exploit and extract. Like the story about the salmon and knowledge. Be careful about what salmons you fuck with. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. But even this with insects, and I went looking this up. Like bees. Bees are hugely important, right? Mm-hmm. Big time. In Irish mythology, going back to Bridget, now I'm not talking Saint Bridget, I'm talking the goddess Bridget, so this could be 2,000 years old. In Irish mythology, there's, there's not a heaven or hell. There's our world and the other world, and it's like a parallel universe, you know? So with this parallel, it's, it's where fairies come from, it's where the Tuatha Dé Danann come from. Um, they believe that the mouth of a river, a spring, where all the minerals come up, that that's coming from the other world, this other dimension. So Bridget apparently, because she was a goddess, could switch between dimensions. And she used to keep bees in the other world. So these bees that Bridget had were magical from the other world. And then they would pass into this world whenever there was morning mist, that this mist would shimmer between our world and the other world. So the bees would come in through there. And that's how ancient Irish people explained the miracle of fertilization. How do we get these beautiful apples? Well, fucking bees come from the other world and Bridget tends them. Like, then you don't kill bees. Yeah. Because you're not fucking with these things that come from the other world. Uh, in, in ancient Irish mythology, they believed that butterflies, that when a person dies, because of the way a butterfly flutters, right? That when a person dies, their soul leaves their body as a butterfly. Or a butterfly will come near you if a person has recently died, that's your relative returning, right? Now, that might sound like silly stuff, but up until the 1600s in Ireland, there was a law. Yeah, you couldn't kill. You couldn't kill a white butterfly because it was the soul of a child. Do you get what I'm saying? Now, mythology is, like I said, is the fruiting body of the unconscious mind. That's what keeps us in harmony with nature. Because if you look at what colonization does, colonization is you destroy the culture and indigenous culture and mythology of, of, of a land, take away that, and then you open it up for exploitation. So when the British came here, it, particularly after the, I think it's the fucking Elizabethan period, Cromwell and all that crack, 1600s onwards. They cleared the forests. They killed all the wolves. Like, the eradication of culture and language went alongside the eradication of our rainforests. Why? So that these things could be extracted for profit mm. only. When you remove meaning and respect and fear and stories, then the land is nothing but something to make money from. And that's what colonization does. Do you get what I'm saying? I do, yeah. 
and it's replicated across the world. Like, yeah, the, the that's, why I'm asking, that's why I'm asking about Singapore. I'm wondering what is it about their culture that maybe has them a little bit more respectful and fearful of nature? You have to be in balance here. Yeah, I think I think it's a cultural thing. You know, Southeast Asian people are very in touch with nature, but also I think as well with Singapore, they're on the very bottom of that Malaysian kind of peninsula, that big mm-hmm. that big landmass, and they have a very limited amount of space to mm-hmm. use. So they just use it carefully. They thought about what they're going to do. They thought about the future. It's quite new as well, though, isn't it? Yeah, it's quite new. But I mean, as places like Hong Kong. Hong Kong isn't like the the, the British built Hong Kong, and yeah. it's it's really not nice in terms of what they did to the place. No, but again, if you're in Hong Kong, there is they've left the forest areas around, so it's oh, not far place. away okay. to yeah. get up there. It's not like Dublin when you go up to the f- the pine forests and it's just quilt and muck. You know what I mean? So it's there's a difference. They still have a good kind of patch of their old nature there, even mm-hmm. though it's a mega city. Mm-hmm. You know, I kind of admire them for that, as opposed to what we've bare hills and and just because rows and rows of monoculture. What we don't think of as well in this country is, um, like I used to be, you'd be up in an airplane, you'd look down and you'd go, "Wow, aren't we great with all that green?" Mm. And I used to think it was class until I realised those fields aren't worth shit. Mm. They used to be rainforests. Nothing happens on those fields other than one type of grass. Mm. And that may as well be concrete. They used to be. But even after the rainforest, we were still a really biodiverse and rich in nature country because we had meadows and we had we had yeah. soft farming methods, you know what I mean? Um, but it's all gone. And like we're getting to the stage now where it's not only the insects are gone, but they're looking at like the, the microfauna in the, in the soil. And that's starting What's to that fail. Now? What's the fungus, the, the, okay. the small little bugs that live in the soil, they're starting mm-hmm. to disappear because you're constantly throwing down pesticides. You're constantly, you know. I heard that because uh, someone wrote in a question that they're dipping sheep in some chemical and this chemical yeah. is what's killing the soil. Yeah. Your dog as well. If you're putting flea killer on your dog and it jumps into ah, a local pond, way. it's not doing great because that's a serious pesticide. So if he jumps into a, a, a frog pond or a... a you know, runs through a stream where there's loads of uh, damselfly lava stuff. That stuff will go down. It all adds up. Frogs have nothing to eat. It all adds up. You know, so it, it it's it, just it's so complicated to try and set this boat right. It's like we're heading towards that iceberg, and it's just so hard to to, to steer it away. People come up with these fast track answers. And it's it's not easy. It really isn't, and it will take like a cultural change, a massive cultural change, to try and set us right. But there are little things that we can do ourselves that really, really make an impact. One thing that uh, I would recommend to people is because it's just empowering, and I I call this uh, Chucky Garlan. Yeah. <laughs> Because uh, I did a podcast on it. Because I was, as I was saying there, like about there is a relationship between uh, climate collapse and, and fucking uh, colonialism. So you can be anti-colonial about this. Make seed bombs, right? This is great crack. This is, and it's, it's, it feels wonderful to do it, right? You first off get your Irish wild seed. Get the real stuff. Uh, if you walk into B and Q home base and it says wildflower. Look at the back of that packet and make sure that it says Irish, fucking native Irish. It probably isn't. Um, 
irishwildflower.ie I think is the one you need to go for to get legitimate Irish wildflower seeds. They're not expensive. Then go on to YouTube and look up how to make a seed bomb. It's two ingredients. Do you remember the modeling clay that you'd use in, in, in school? Just kind of, you'd get it in an art shop. Clay. No, 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 not Marla. Like uh, <laughs> the clay that dries. It's cheap enough. You get some of that clay and then you get a bit of peat moss or compost or whatever. And you just get clay and compost and you make a little ball, like a, like a golf ball. But then you roll that around in your wildflower seed. Leave them dry. And then you have these little golf balls that are loaded with Irish wildflower. Then walk around Dublin, right? <laughs> Seriously, this is amazing. And when you get angry at a vacant lot, if you see a big fucking dirty Fine Gael vacant lot, if you see uh, a derelict building that you know they're not going to go near for 10 years and this is pissing you off, this is what you do. You reach into your pocket, you pull out your seed bomb and fuck it onto the roof. <laughs> fuck it into a ghost estate. Fuck it into... But you know what I mean? Yeah, 100%. Into a shopping centre that they stopped building in 2007 and now it's just rotting. Throw wildflower seeds in there. And what happens is that the bomb lands and then it has enough soil for that wildflower to grow. And once it grows, it's a fucking flower. It'll start pollinating itself. If enough people do that, without breaking any fucking laws, you can rewild all of Dublin in this real gorilla way where you're not harming anybody. You know, so do that. It's, it's, I did it all over Limerick and it really fucking works. Or as well, I was trying to do this in Limerick before the pandemic, but the, my, my local pub that I go to in Limerick, Pharmacia, I was trying to get people there to make their own uh, seed bombs and just leave them in a basket at the bar. And if people want to take them away, fucking take them and throw a few hash seeds in if you want. <laughs> Although don't do that actually, because then the guards will fuck with it. But wildflower, throw it everywhere. But that, what, what, as someone who knows what they're talking about, what would that, it, let's just say every single person in this audience decided, I'm going to make seed bombs and I'm going to fuck them at the next vacant lot that I see in Dublin. What would that do to the city centre? And there's like a thousand, there's 1,200 people here. It, it would certainly make it a lot easier for some touristy bees to get, to get some food or to get a bit of nourishment. Little steps like that, if it's done on a big scale by individuals, mm -hmm. will help. It's exactly what I was talking about with getting together with your community groups to try and like say, well, what can we do as a team? And I'll do this, you do that. Mm -hmm. um, everything from the wildflowers to plant trees to put it in wetlands. And wetlands are sh super important, mm -hmm. super important. So if you can do all that sort of stuff, it will make a massive difference. It makes a huge and difference. What I love about it as well, Kali, is with this, like sometimes just using the recycling bin at home, it doesn't feel like I'm making a difference. Yeah, and then you... you and I know we're up here with our fucking plastic like a pair of pricks. <laughs> but you see, you see the news reports about where all that recycling was that's going. That's what I mean. It's just being shipped, so you feel great, but you're not actually doing anything. But if you have a tiny pond out of your back garden and that's, you're that's looking at insects... That's hands-on, effective conservation. Mm -hmm. That's what you want to be doing. It's no greenwash, there's no bullshit. You're going to put something in and wildlife is going to use it. Mm -hmm. And you'll see it. And that's even more incredible because you're just like, oh my God, this is actually working. Mm -hmm. As opposed to like, as you said, putting the plastic thing in, mm -hmm. you know. 
So we're going to have a little interval and then we, when we come back, we'll speak about some of those methods that people can do. Yeah. Time now for a little ocarina pause so you don't get any surprise adverts that frighten you. Recently, I've been hitting myself into the head with a new book each week. I like this, this trend instead of the ocarina pause. This week, I'm going to hit myself into the head with a book called Things We Lost in the Fire by Mariana Enriquez. It's a short story collection by one of my favourite contemporary short story writers, Mariana Enriquez, who's from Argentina. And I suppose you'd call it a little bit magical realism, a little bit horror. She writes these very visceral and frightening stories. So let's hit ourselves in the head with Things We Lost in the Fire by Mariana Enriquez. And you're going to hear an advert for something while I do this. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello, this is an advertisement for better help. I have frequently attended therapy. For the past 20 years, when I experience anxiety or depression, or when I have difficulty naming and labelling my emotions, identifying my emotions, I often seek the help of a professional therapist to improve my emotional literacy. I've attended therapy in person, and I've attended therapy online. If online therapy is something you might be interested in, give better help a try. It's entirely online, it's convenient, flexible, and it's suited to your schedule. All you gotta do is fill out a brief questionnaire, and you get matched with a licensed therapist. And you can switch therapists anytime, for no additional charge. So give it a go. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash blindboy today to get 10% off your first month. That's better, H-E-L-P dot com slash blind boy the noise on my computer is very loud this week I think my hard drive needs to be cleared very angry sounding computer here the fan is pure loud support for this podcast comes from you the listener via the patreon page patreon.com forward slash the blind boy podcast if this podcast brings you joy distraction solace entertainment Whatever it is that has you listening to this podcast, please consider paying me for the work that I do to make this podcast. This podcast is my full-time job. It's how I earn a living. It's how I rent out this office. It's how I buy my equipment. It's how I pay my bills. This podcast is only possible because it's my full-time job. So if you like it and you're listening to it regularly, please consider giving me the price of a pint or a cup of coffee once a month. But you know what? If you can't afford that, if you don't have that money, Don't worry about it. 
you can listen for free. Because the person who is paying is paying for you to listen for free. So everybody gets a podcast. I get to earn a living. It's a wonderful model based on kindness and soundness. Follow me on Instagram, Blind by Boat Club. My new book, Topographia Hibernica, is coming out in November. You can pre-order it. And the link is my saved stories on my Instagram page. Let's plug some upcoming gigs. I've got some live podcasts coming up. On the 26th of August, I'm in the Cork Opera House. That's going to be wonderful crack. It's part of Cork Podcast Week. And also during Cork Podcast Week, Kali, Kali Ennis, actually has a live podcast too. Kali is doing the Crater Shed live podcast, right, on August 27th in the Cork Arts Theatre. And it's a child-friendly show, so you can bring your kids along. It's 1pm in the day. And as I understand it, Collie will have a lot of insects with him. He'll be bringing his tarantulas and his notes and spiders and all sorts of things. So the Critter Shed Live podcast, August 27th at the Cork Arts Theatre, 1pm. That'd be fun, especially if you have kids. I don't think you should bring children to my live podcast on account of rude words. I'm in Vicker Street on the 28th of August, which I believe is a Monday night. I'm telling you lads, my Monday, my midweek Vicker Street gigs, live podcasts, are wonderful. This one that you're listening to right now, this was like a Monday night Vicker Street gig. It's a different energy. It has the peacefulness of being at the cinema. You can go to it. You don't have to worry about work the next day because you're not going to be drinking. You'll be at home in bed. It's a great, relaxing engaging way to spend a Monday night so come along to that Vicker Street gig on Monday the 28th of August it's almost sold out actually but that's going to be good fun I'll have a class guest then what else have we got Don Leary is sold out Patrick Cavan a weekend up in Monaghan on the 30th of September have a great guest for that really good guest and there's not there's not a lot of seats for that. That's only 190. So that that one will set out. But I've got an amazing guest for the Patrick Cavanagh weekend up in uh, the Patrick Cavanagh Centre in Inishkeen, County Monaghan. English tour. UK. I- England, Scotland. I don't know if I'm doing Wales. There's a tour happening over there. There's a tour happening over in that island there to the right. I can't give you any any details yet. It's happening in November. Hopefully next week I'll have the actual dates. But there's there's something happening in Tanland. Then Belfast, the waterfront, right? On the 18th of November. That's going to be good crack. Alright, waterfront is a beautiful venue. Do you know what? Because um, that one's probably going to sell out. I'd love it if you'd recommend a few guests for Belfast for me. Would you? Just give me a little DM on Instagram and I tell you why. I have to really check myself when it comes to the north of Ireland that I don't treat the north of Ireland as, as a curious tourist. Being from the free state, the north of Ireland is a, is a place of curiosity to us because of the period known as the Troubles. And listeners up north always say to me, don't have a guess that's political. Don't have don't don't interview someone up in Belfast to speak about the troubles because a 
a lot of people are just sick of hearing it all the time up there. B, there's community trauma. Community trauma exists. C, I don't want to be up there as a tourist. I don't want to be up on stage as a tourist. I want to be in service of the audience. So, if you have guest suggestions, interesting people, whatever the fuck, someone who's an expert in Alsatians, whatever you want. If you know of interesting, engaging, passionate people up in Belfast who you'd like to to be my guest, give me a shout on Instagram and make some suggestions. Back to this chat with the wonderful Kali Ennis. And in the second part, we speak about venomous insects and we speak about invasive species in Ireland and building ponds. So, yeah, we spent the first half talking about, like, Irish biodiversity, Mm. which I love that we focused on that because... Like, you've got loads of mad, more interesting shit going on. Um, yeah. This fella has a shed out his back garden with insects that will kill you stone dead. <laughs> like, legitimately, like, you, you have... Like, so you recently, you moved out to Wicklow, so you have more space. Yeah. Like, just tell us, what's the most dangerous insect you have at home now? Uh, an arachnid, um, the six-eyed sand spider. So, yeah, um... They live in deserts, and desert creatures are really uh, vulnerable for two reasons, because they are, deserts are kind of poor environments for finding food. Mm-hmm. And also, if anything comes across you, it wants to eat you immediately. So you tend to get these animals, snakes, spiders, scorpions, that live in deserts will have a lot more potent venom. Mm-hmm. And the six-eyed span, sand spider lives in some of the harshest deserts in the world. So they, they bury themselves. You would have seen them online. People are calling them the cocaine spider because they're in a white dish of powder and they bury themselves. But that's how they, they literally sit there waiting for prey, sometimes for months, just sitting there really, really still. And then a little cricket comes across and the six-eyed sand spider comes out and very gingerly, it's not vicious, it's really like, bites it and the cricket goes, dead. Now most spiders, when they envenomate another animal, they have to struggle a bit, hold it, Wait for the venom to take effect. Not these boys. It's game over straight away. And the reason is, is that, so they're so isolated and they come across prey so infrequently that they can't miss. Yeah, that's exactly it. So how do you... So the, the other thing about this one is like, you don't know what would happen to you if you got bitten because it, we don't know if a human has ever even been bitten by these. Yeah, no one's volunteering for trials. <laughs> so we don't know. Yeah, we don't know. Like, I mean, like a lot of stuff you, you test on, on similar animals, mainly rodents. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, they get um, brain bleeds, heart attacks, something similar to Ebola. They basically liquefy themselves. So pretty funky venom. How do you then... Because you're going to go home tonight. And yeah. And tomorrow, you're, or, or, well, I'm assuming you don't feed these fellas every day. No, especially like desert species, you don't want to feed them every day because they're not used to it. So when's the next time you have to feed the six-eyed sand spider? I have a chart at home. I would say, I would say it's, it's once every three months, so I'd say it's coming up to one anyway. So. so what is your regime around this spider that could kill you stone dead? And if it, and if it does bite you, it's like, we don't know. It's never, <laughs> he's the first person. Let's see what happens. 
How do you manage that? I met you in Cork and he had it in a fucking Chinese takeaway container. <laughs> like, for real, we're backstage. in Because I asked him tonight, I said, look, don't bring any insects with you tonight. It's not that type of show and I, I'm kind of freaked out by it. But when I interviewed you in Cork, you had been at a demonstration where you yeah. bought some insects. Yeah. And then he goes, oh, I've got the six-eyed sand spider with me. And I'm like, great, expecting to have to put on a costume. And it's in a fucking Chinese takeaway container. It looks like a Chinese takeaway container, but there are clips on it. So okay. You can't, you can't, so even if I was to drop it, it's not going to break. It has to be a specific type of plastic. You can't get into it. And when you're keeping them as well, the thing about it is, despite the venom, you have to realize that they're not an aggressive spider. Um, and they can't climb plastic. So you're laughing there as well. But again, you have to be really careful. And it has to be in a lockbox. has to be like lab conditions. You know what I mean? And at home, then, I'm, you just throw the food in, I'm guessing, do you? Oh, yeah, yeah. I'm not having it down at the dinner table with the kids, yeah. you know? But I'm assuming there are spiders that you do then. <laughs> You've got a, a, like a, one of the big tarantulas, don't you? Yeah, Goliath Bordy are the biggest arachnid on the planet. Um, and he yeah. just walks around your gaff? No, no. no. <laughs> the, the tortoises walk around the gaff. They're like the pet rocks that people trip over all the time. But um, no, the spiders, tarantulas are actually great pets, believe it or not. If you understand them and if you know that they're not a hamster and you can't mm -hmm. take them out and rub them. Because if you do, you're going to get itchy hairs all over you and you, you, you'll be in bits. <laughs> tell us the story, Kali. Like, tell us the story. So I, I, the Goliath Bordy, or the big one that I have, um, I opened the cage one day. It was actually my mate, so I was babysitting for him. And I went down, I was in a rush. So my mate was away on holidays. And I opened up the Goliath Bordy box at head height. And you're always supposed to put goggles on. And there are, they yeah. have these... Hairs that they flick. And I've been keeping tarantulas for years, so I got very, you know, blasé about it. And I opened the thing and went and got me in the eye. And it was like somebody got a, a hot needle and stuck it in my eye. And as you blink, the hairs that go in there are barbed, like a fishing hook. So they go in further and further, and it's just like, oh, God. So I went to the Ioneer Hospital. And there was a queue of people, as there is in every hospital. And I went up to the counter to fill out the form. Couldn't see properly. Bubbles were coming out of my nose. Just in, in excruciating pain. And the woman took the form off me and went in. I'm like, I'm going to have to sit here for hours now with this pain in my eye. As soon as the doctor saw what happened, he ran out straight away. Mr. Ennis! Because he was buzzing. He'd never seen anybody with a... <laughs> <laughs> tarantula hairs in his eye. So they bring me into this room and it's like, do you remember Clockwork Orange? Like they did that with my eye and I'm sitting there under the oak going, oh my God. And he gave me the opioid drops and it was orgasmic. It was unbelievable. It was like, oh, the relief. So that was grand. And I'm like, they're going to get this out. It's fine. Next minute, all these students start arriving in. They must have got busloads of student doctors in. And they're all filming me down the lens of, their, of this kind of thing that I'm sitting there. And they're asking me all these questions. And it, I was just like, that went on for, it seemed like hours, but it was probably only 40 minutes. Then they got these, they have micro, uh, microscopic kind of tweezers to get in there. So the doctor's there and he's pulling, as he's pulling them out, my vision of the room was going blunk. Cause he was pulling the thing out and it was, it was mental it was. But uh, I didn't feel that at that stage. I was probably a little bit out with the old the opioids, but uh, 
Um, yeah, it was a mad experience and uh, a tough one to explain to the missus. <laughs> um, and also what you do, Collie, is, is like, so you will go on field trips to the most dangerous parts of the world. You'll go into the middle of the Congo. You'll <laughs> like places where humans don't usually go because it's real fucking dangerous with the animals that are there. Well, yeah, I go into like places, like the last place I was out in was Morocco, and you mm -hmm. go out into the field there, and we're, I'm working with the, the guys up in Galway in the Venom Lab up there, and they're setting up a lab in Morocco, because a lot of kids get stung, and there's some pretty funky uh, desert scorpions out there, and they do affect a lot of the kids. Now, if you're going to Morocco on holidays, they're not near the, the holiday places, it's way out in the sticks. But we went out there to, to dig out these scorpions and catch them with some of the local PhD students. And these are the lads in Galway in the Venom Lab. So yeah, they're yeah. interested in, in catching these things so that they can develop anti-venoms. Anti-venoms, cures for all sorts of diseases they're finding. Of course, yeah. Yeah, so you know, you're going to have treatment for cancers and everything, you know what I mean? So, um, yeah, so we go out, like, out, out in Morocco. Now, my family were in a, a nice hotel and I'm going off in the day to catch these scorpions um, and I was having a buzz but we set up a lab there which is very much like my shed and I kind of was showing them you know proper husbandry how to look after them how not to get stung all that sort of stuff so yeah I like doing that kind of thing. So the, the, the local people in Morocco are aware of these scorpions but they're so scary they're just like stay the fuck away so then you come from Dublin going there's actually a way to yeah. be in harmony with them and to husbandry as you said. Yeah, and also, like, if you're farming them in, in captivity, you don't have to go out and collect them from the wild. It makes it easier to work with them, extracting venom, all that sort of stuff. Instead of going out every day, having to find them, you so just like breed a little, them. So, a little economy as well. So, these people now are like, I have a job now in the sticks yeah, of Morocco, yeah, and this is to get some venom from this scorpion. And they're shipping venom now to other places around the world, like vials of it, because they know how to extract it. So, it's, it's, it's really interesting, and it's... It's great for places like that because, you know, people are sleeping in areas where these scorpions are just going to wander in. Like, we're very fortunate here, despite what all the papers say about, you know, giant spiders invading our gaffs. That's not happening. We're not going to get anyone, not going to get seriously hurt by anything over here. But in these countries, it's important to kind of get a, a handle on it. Like, I mean, snake bite is recognized by the UN now as one of the biggest killers of people in the tour world because people are out picking our tea bags, leaves. Mm -hmm. Now they're doing it manually. And there's a lovely viper sitting there and goes, get away from me and bites that person. And because anti-venom is so expensive to make and pharmaceutical companies are pricks, you're, you're, left, there with, you're left there with some poor person. Who, if they don't die, they're going to lose a limb. They're going to lose their job. So, you know, so this work is important because you can... Local communities there don't have to go to Pfizer or whoever. It's like you've been bitten by this viper and now we have a local venom lab that we've been and we can do our own anti-venom well the idea is to get like especially with the, the snake bite thing is to get a universal anti-venom and get it done cheap you know and, and get For it all bites imagine that be amazing you know yeah. so um lots of lots of interesting work done and uh, 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 you know and being into these kind of less loved creatures and freaky stuff i i, I find it fascinating and it's, it's really cool to be involved in it you know it's like it's kind of like Forrest Gump moment where you're sitting in the desert going, I'm from Crumlin, what am I doing out here? <laughs> chasing, chasing scorpions or, or, or going to Kenya with students on a con uh, 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 ecological trips, seeing the effects of human encroachment on like the Massey-Mara National Park and stuff like that. It's just kind of living the dream because I would have grown up 
watching Attenborough, reading books, uh, you know, I was passionate about all this stuff as a kid, and now I'm doing it. It's mental. So what I'd love to ask you about as well is, is, so I fucking love heavy metal music, right? And yeah. you know, and so do you. And if, I'm, if I've had a few cans at two in the morning, Collie's the person I'm sending a cannibal corpse song to. Do you know what I mean? We've had, we've had many a conversation where we look yeah. at it the next day and we're not spelling things right. But we both love metal. Yeah. And what I'd love to know is your love of, because what, what I adore about heavy metal is it's hilarious. Yeah. I love how yeah. it is really funny. Like metal is, is, it does not take itself seriously. No. And how, like, snakes are part of metal, scary spiders are part of metal. Surely that's part of the attraction for you. Yeah. I mean, if you go to like uh, any reptile or herpetological conference, there's two types of people there. There's people with the, the tweed shorts and the, the leather patches on their on their jackets, and there's people there with 62 piercings in their nose. You know what I mean? And tats all down the thing, and it's brilliant. It's like, yeah, and I'm kind of halfway house between both of them. Um, so yeah, it it's it it does lend to the culture. Um, you know, one thing I do say is because I I you know animals like exotic animals to get as pets are still the same as a dog or a cat. Yeah, it's all about S- response. Slash used to have. A snake around his neck when he was playing guitar and stuff. Mm, yeah, I'm not mad Which about is, that. Yeah. Imagine he was doing it with an Alsatian. People would be going mental, you know what I mean? <laughs> you know, I, I see people going into nightclubs with snakes and stuff. Yeah. It's like, what are you doing? Do that yeah. with a cat and see what people will say. So they, they, they're living animals and I think they should be respected. And, and Are we getting better? Because the, the mad thing too, it, like, if you... Sp- sp- it, it used to happen in England more than Ireland. In the 70s and 80s, there was always like a small little local, local nightclub. And the nightclub was called like Crocs. Yeah. It's like, why do they call it Crocs? And it's like, because it's a fucking real crocodile in the <laughs> nightclub. That was a thing. There was one of them in... Um, sure, there was a fucking... A, a huge 12-foot snake got loose in a strip club in Limerick. <laughs> during Brian McFadden's stag park. <laughs> um... During the Celtic Tiger in Limerick, there used to be multiple strip clubs in Limerick, right? Mm. Now there's not. There's just one swinger sauna full of taxi drivers. <laughs> but there used to be all these strip clubs. And there was one place anyway. And Brian McFadden was having a stag party when he was getting married to Kerry Katona. And all of Westlife was down. And whatever they'd done anyway, they'd hired a stripper with a snake. Like a huge snake. Mm. And the pub next door to the strip club used to be called the High Stool. And it was a heavy metal bar. And all my buddies worked there. So whatever happened at this fucking stag party, they lost the snake. And my buddy, who's now a guard in Bray. (laughs) (laughs) He was the barman at this fucking metal bar. He was sent upstairs for fucking whiskey. And there's a 12-foot cobra there. It was like weeks later... They'd like, no one had reported the missing snake. Yeah. And now there's a giant cobra upstairs. Happens all the time. Wait, yeah. I'll give you, I'll give you, I'll, I'll give you a good one. And again, it's down to like people are, if you should have a license for it. Yeah. I really, you know, I, I'd be pushing for that. Like it just, it's just responsible pet ownership. And then like, I mean, I get saddled with all these pets. So a lot of people get snakes and spiders. They get them and then they grow or they get bored with them. Some people get yeah. them as a personality transplant, I think. You know what I mean? It's like... Mm. Oh, I'm really interested to have a snake. It's like, you know, and then they end up giving it away and I have to, you know, try and rehome it and stuff. You're the person who gets called. I get called out. Here's a good one for you, right? The, the, the uh, DSPCA gave me a shout. I was in work and I was finishing up a shift at three. 
and they gave me a shout. They said, we're after getting a report of a snake loose in Crumlin. And I was like, all right, that's on my way home. So I hopped in the, the frogmobile and I, I, uh, I, I, I headed off to Crumlin. And I'm in contact with the, the daughter of the man who found it. And she's screaming down the phone at me. And I'm like, oh my God, this is mad. So I pulled into the, turns out, and I pulled in. I was like, I know this place. This is a nursing home. It's a kind of a retirement village in Crumlin. Next to regular families, gaffs. But we're connecting attic. Poor old 78-year-old man with a big gut on him and, you know, probably liked a few cans of the afternoon, was sitting in his bed and a python fell through the roof <laughs> because it had gone along from whoever's house it got out of and gone between the boards. And pythons are heavy, heavy animals, you know, five, six kilos, boom, onto him. And he's there with the pacemaker, short now. And his daughter screaming, and I'm coming up, and the poor snake was, harm was harmless enough, you know. But uh, yeah, that was a mental one. I was putting it into a pillowcase, throw it on my shoulder, and was it was it a big bite then? Like was it? She was about seven foot. Yeah, she was on seven <laughs> foot. Yeah. So what was the? <laughs> and again, no one, no one said anything about it going missing. Okay. You know, it's mad, and they... so the person who had it mightn't have given a shit. Or went, oh my God, what am I going to do? What, you, what are you going to do? Knock into your neighbours, by the way. Big. It's a tough one, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, well, I mean, that's why it's, it's so important like, to be a responsible owner, to have locks on your How your did that happen? Like, like, Snakes okay, are you, you don't know the person who did it, but how do you reckon a fucking seven-foot python ends up even leaving the person's house? So snakes are incredible escapers. Absolutely. If you leave a little gap in the tank... And they don't want to be there inside in that tank. No, it's not about that. I mean, most of them are... If you've a big enough tank, they're happy out. But at the same time, they'll, they'll have a wander. They'll have a look around, you know. Um, they'll get the smell of a rat in the attic, which is more than likely what happened. And then they'll go off, and they, they tend to go up as well. Up and warm. And, and how does that... Like, so they have enough muscles on their body, I'm guessing, to fucking reach up high and get into that ceiling. Oh, man, don't get me talking about snakes. Snakes are incredible. You're like, on a podcast, man, <laughs> and you're here to do that job. But... Uh, <laughs> Come on. So, you know, if you, if you were God and you were designing one of the most effective vertebrate predators on the planet, you wouldn't, like, get your mauler and just go, ah, <laughs> roll out a, like a rope. But they are, because... They can climb vertical poles. They've wrapped themselves around it, pull them up. They can swim. They've taken over this, their sea snakes there that live 90% of their life in the sea. They only come out to breed. You've got snakes that can jump. You've got, you know, amazingly, you've got snakes from Southeast Asia that will crawl up to the top of a tree. They go out onto the very edge of a branch. They'll flatten themselves out like an airplane wing. They'll jump off and they'll glide for like 30 meters and wow. steer themselves in the air. And that's all done with the shape of a, a tube. So yeah, they can, do, they can do loads of stuff. I love snakes, they're incredible animals. There's a brilliant snake as well, combining two of my favorite animals that they discovered in 2006 in Iran. Now, Iran wouldn't be a great place to go into the, the, the wilderness if you're a scientist because it's just not friendly to that kind of thing. But some people have been very adventurous and gone out there and they discovered this snake. Well, they, they thought they discovered a spider, so they saw this spider on a rock moving around. And then he saw a board coming down to eat a spider. And next minute, a snake comes out and grabs it. The snake's tail has evolved to look like a spider. And he uses it as a lure. 
check it out on, on YouTube tonight. It's called the, um, oddly enough, it's the spider-tailed horn viper. But yeah, it's, a, it's an amazing animal. It's a, and it's like, it's like something you dream of when you're in school. Oh, I, put a, I put a spider's tail on the edge of a snake. But it's amazing, really cool. And you've, uh, over the pandemic, you did a lot of field work in Ireland. Yeah. And you, you said, we, were, we were promising ourselves we weren't going to talk about it backstage and we save it for the stage. But what new stuff have you been finding in Ireland? Yeah, so we're quite poor in... in na naturally, we'd be quite poor in biodiversity because we were basically covered by ice yeah. throughout the whole of the Ice Age. And as that ice retreated and the warmer loving creatures like amphibians and reptiles were moving across. They got to England, but then the Irish Sea formed before a lot of them could get over here. That's why they have snakes in England. Yeah, they have yeah. a load of snakes over there, well, compared to us, but um, Boris Johnson being the biggest, but... Um, <laughs> uh, so so we've, we've uh, one lizard, so we've got the, the common lizard, we've one newt, the smooth newt, We've got one frog, the common frog, and we've one We've fucking one frog. Only one frog. Well, one species. Yeah. Well, I know, yeah, yeah. but Jesus Christ. Yeah. And people think we've loads because they're multicolored, which is yeah. really unusual for, for amphibians. But we've, we've only the one of each. Now, over the, over the last number of years, we've found common toads. So English toads were in the Dublin mountains. And we thought that, like, yeah, we were like, somebody's out to releasing them. Um, I spent a lot of time with my colleagues, uh, Rob Gondola and uh, a few others in the Herpetological Society, traipsing around the Dublin mountains trying to find where they were breeding, all this stuff. We did a citizen science project, so we basically called it Toad in the Hole to try and, have you, have you seen this toad, comparing it to Irish uh, amphibians? And we've discovered that they're not only up in the Dublin mountains, they're all over the place. And they've probably been there and I'm working on that at the moment because they move very slowly. Um, and once we get the DNA results in, if it's the one population, if it hasn't been multiple introductions, they could have been here hundreds of years ago. They could have been introduced by like the Massey's, the gentry in, in, wow. in from England. And no one noticed them here because we're so anglicized in our media, like everything from Wind in the Willows when you're reading that yeah. to Spring Watch on the BBC, you're thinking... If you see one, I'm sure it's part of our natural fauna. Do Unless we have toads? Do we have Irish toads? We have natterjack toads, but they only live in the Dingle Peninsula, so you wouldn't okay. see them around. But people seeing the toads up in the Dublin Hills and just assumed they were always supposed to be there. So it's really interesting. Are they larger than frogs? No, they're around the same size. And they don't seem to be doing any harm. Um, quite endearing. Wow, really? Yeah, because, because they live natively in Europe alongside our own. Okay, kind of so what they're eating, that they're not impacting any yeah, insects? Yeah, now or? that doesn't always be the case because we've got the, the, the pygmy shrew as our common shrew. That's a small little mammal about mm -hmm. that size. And then you've got the, the, the white tooth shrew, which is uh, a European species. Now in Europe, they live together quite happily. Mm -hmm. But they, the, the white tooth shrew was induced, introduced to Ireland and it's basically wiped out the pygmy shrew. For some reason, because we're on an island, you don't know what effect these creatures arriving in is going to have. Some are going to be winners, some are going to be losers. It's, it's, it's really, really interesting. And uh, I find that kind of sort of fascinating. Like we have another newt that's after arriving that was found in a bog in the middle of nowhere by my colleague Anya. And uh, he, ra he sent me a text and he goes, I think this newt is a bit sick. And I went, okay, send me a picture. 
he sent me a picture, and I was like, that's an alpine new. What is that yodeler doing there? You know, <laughs> in the middle of nowhere. So, uh, yeah. Where is this newt from? From Europe, from, from uh, many places in Europe. Well, look up around the Alps and, and, and into France and into Poland. But they've been introduced now. How does it, a newt get here? Well, that's, that's the thing. There could be, you know, my, I have a few theories myself and I don't want to uh, spoil I mean, I would think wood, wood, surely. Like, uh, even in Limerick, right? Yeah. There's a place in Limerick called the Scrap Heap. And we'd see ships coming in and there's loads of pine trees. And they're, they're, they're from Russia and from around there. So, like... Yeah, or, you know, we shipments of plants that come in. Of course, uh, yeah. B- botanical collections. Um, I think that's valid. You've, you could have multiple introductions on different things. And once uh, a species like that, that are very successful, gets in, um, I don't think they're going to be as innocuous as the toads are. I think they're going to be... They'd be trouble. We be, be want to watch. And we're looking for funding now to really get a grip on it. Um, there needs to be a lot more work um, from the governments. Um, so if the Greens so are listening to what, this, they need to start forking out some cash. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> fair enough. What, 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 so what's your... F- like? Okay, let's pretend I'm Eamon Ryan. <laughs> and you get five minutes with Eamon Ryan and you're trying to say to Eamon Ryan, um, I found this alpine newt. Here are my fears. What's yeah. your fear? That we'll have a lot of alpine newts in the country and no smooth newts. What, yeah, we'll have we'll have a lot of uh, of, of one species. That it, it could be the Irish cane toad. Oh, you yeah. You know what I mean? Have you? Do you know about the cane toad in Australia? They're a big deal. <laughs> They're uh, massive, massive toads, but they they eat everything. Yeah, they brought them over in the 1920s to Australia to eat the sugar cane beetles that were eating the crops, because they do that in South America where they're from. Mm-hmm. But when they got to Australia, the toads were like, fuck off. And they went and they started to eat everything else. And nothing could eat them because it didn't evolve with them. So People don't have, like, I've, there's, a, there's a brilliant documentary. Oh, it's one of the best it's, documentaries. Yeah, it's amazing. It's, a, it's a, an Australian documentary from the 1970s about the cane toad. And it's just hilarious because Australian people are just hilarious. But it's on YouTube for free. It's amazing. But there's people who... They walk out their back porch and there's no ground because the ground is full of toad. Yeah. And they're huge. Yeah. The biggest one was recorded there a couple of weeks ago. It was like f- touching on four kilos. Or mm. Mental. Like, it's so bad that when... If you go to the airport in Australia, they sell like wallets made out of their bodies. Yeah. And it's like a frog wallet. It's a toad wallet. Like they're, they're, they encourage people to hit them with golf clubs. Like it's, re- yeah. Oh, I'm serious. Oh, yes. Go out the back garden and kill them with golf clubs because there's too many of them. And, and the gas thing is, they, like, when they went out into the world, like monitor lizards, crocodiles, all the native uh, Australian marsupials who would normally eat frogs were eating them and dying. So, so the populations oh. were crashing as the toads were marching across. And Who eats newts? Uh, anything they can, you know. I mean, so, so birds, herons, and stuff. My, my. But this new newt could kill a heron. That's another thing because it has a toxic, certain amount of toxicity to oh, it. So, it so if a badger gets and into our a newt, yeah. doesn't. Yeah, well, it does as well. But again, it's about evolving next to an animal. You know what yeah. I mean? A great thing that they've done in Australia, though, in regards to the cane toads, and the tide is turning. Nature's uh, uh, correcting itself. The, the corvids, the, 
the crows and the magpies are very, very clever animals. So they've learned that the toxins are on the back of the toad. So if they flip them over, they can eat them from the underside. So they're having a field day. They're getting toad, toad liver for breakfast, dinner, and tea. And scientists have learned um, that if you capture quolls, for example, a beautiful, charming little Native American marsupial, and you grind up toads and put it in the quolls dinner, in a bit of cat food that will be eaten, just enough that it won't get killed, but just, just to give it the worst qual toad hangover it's ever had in its life. You know, you, you've been to that pub where you have, they have dodgy points. Yeah. And you say, I'm never going to go back there again. That's the, the, the natural way of, of kind of getting them to go, oh my God, I remember the smell of toad. I'm not going to eat that again. When they do it with female quals and release them back into the wild, they'll teach their kids that. Oh, so it's a amazing. really cool way of doing it. Another thing about cane toads is their tadpoles are quite predatory of their own kind. They're cannibalistic. Mm -hmm. So they've synthesized a young toad smell and put it in these kind of lobster pots in lakes where there's massive amounts of tadpoles. So all the tadpoles go, dinner, and they all come in. And they pull all the pots out, dispose of the tadpoles, and that crashes the numbers as well. So it's kind of turning, but it's costing Australia billions. Now, that's what I'd say to Eamon Ryan. Do you want that here with newts? So let's see what we can do right now. Let's see. Let's knock it on the head. Let's see how... how first what of all, would that look like? I'm assuming you and your group then would want funding to go... Yeah, well, you want to get a PA. You we're going to kill newts. Well, that's what we're talking about, isn't it? Yeah, well, I mean, like you, you have to see impact, what they're eating, what's eating them. Is it having an effect? All mm -hmm. that stuff has to be done first. Because we don't want to be killing animals that didn't do anything out of their own fault. You know what I mean? Um, but you need to research and you need to get a grip of it now as opposed to going, oh, God, yeah, down the line. Here's a little question for you, actually, just as someone who loves animals. like, So I remember out my back garden about two years ago, just above the porch, I had what I believed to be an infestation of false widows. You did. You sent me the photograph. Yeah. yeah. So uh, there was loads of them. So I'm going, okay, they're false widows, they need to die. <laughs> but I went, hold on a second here. Because I, I don't know, like, I know what a false widow looks like, but I'm not an expert. So I sent you a photograph of them, and you said, no, they're not. They were uh, an arb weaver. Oh, okay, yeah. yeah. So you managed to save... Uh, a native species. There was about 60 of them, like. And oh, if, yeah, yeah, yeah. If I, I that thought one. that they were... Um, false widows, yeah. I would have just sprayed them because yeah. I know that they shouldn't be here. Yeah, and, and even spraying, like, I mean, there was a school in London. My God, I couldn't believe it. They, London, false widows have been in England for like 150 years. And just because the press and the Daily Mail have been making such a fuss about them, everybody's terrified. So the false widows are a new spider that are in Ireland and they, they can bite you. Yeah, but you, it's, you know, it's not the press love that. <laughs> yeah. Anything to sell papers. So they were, they were kind of putting the, the willies up everybody. They went to, uh, this school found some false widows in, in, in the windowsills and, and stuff like that. So they took everybody out of the school for two weeks, gassed the whole place to get rid of the infestation, and then opened the school up again. Now, first of all, it's staffed. It's mental. The, most false widows are going to sit in their web. They're not an aggressive species. The only time they kind of nip you is if you're putting pressure on them, if it's cutting your jacket or something like that. Also, if you gas an area, because they are an invasive species, they're the first ones to come back. 
Like literally the next week they'll be there going, yeah. prime real estate. So it's like it's completely unnecessary and uh, counterproductive in many ways because you're also killing all the native spiders as you as you were saying there. So what do you do when you're just so you go about your day with a different set of eyes than I have. You, you, like you're, you're the type of person who comes across white dog shit. <laughs> I'm guessing. But what I mean is that like, you're like, you walk down an alleyway and you're interested in the corner of a brick. You're yeah, looking yeah. for insects all the time. All the time, yeah. I mean, what like, do you do when you come across something that it's like, you shouldn't be here? Yeah, and there's a couple of species that I'm pretty sure have arrived here but I haven't found them yet because they're in... But do you oh, kill them on sight? No, 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 no. First of all, you kind of... You're trying to... You want to... I'm not the Terminator, like, you know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> you don't belong here. No, um, <laughs> uh, No, the first thing you want to do is, like, find out how many are there. Again, impact, all that kind of stuff. There's a process to it. Uh, to try and get a grip on, 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 on what they're doing, what their effect is, and, and then you take it from there. And if they're having an effect and they're in low numbers, then you can kind of deal with it. And that's the whole point with the, with the Alpines, is the kind of, the Alpine new is that, you know, stuff like that should be taken seriously. Terrapins in our waterways should be taken seriously. We're going to get warmer. People are, are at the millions of terrapins, thousands at least. They're the little small turtles. The turtles that get yeah. to that size in yeah. a couple of years, and then people go, well, you'll be Have grounded. you found any terrapins in the wild in Ireland? They're everywhere. Go down to the Grand Canal dock on a sunny day. Really? When you're having your coffee. And are you serious? At, at the ramps. They're everywhere. Are you serious? Yeah, loads of them. Loads of them. Have you seen them? You see, he's lucky, he has a different set of eyes to us. <laughs> like, you're looking and I'm not. Yeah. Like, I was on the way up to the Viking Museum yesterday, and, uh, which was great, I loved it. But I, 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 I found a crab on the ground. <laughs> what uh, was he doing there? Uh, probably, probably one of the herring gulls down at the Liffey, having a snack, and got a little Left pinch. Him there. Dropped okay. him there, yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, Another vilified species, the poor old herring gulls, but uh, yeah. But why vilified? Did well, people are just going mental about them, and the press doesn't help, and it's like, oh. The deserves? They, they, uh, well, the cleaning ladies in, in Shinty have to wear crash helmets in the morning when the gulls are nesting because they'll swoop down and bang them on the head. Um, <laughs> but that's because, that's because there's no fish in the sea where they'd normally be out catching them. So they're nesting inland, they're moving inland. Wow. Okay. All these things are affected, have direct effect from our own behavior. So like, and they, they are like a protected species and then people or counselors are up in arms saying they need to be killed or they need to be, it's, it's ridiculous, you know? Um, I remember once, so one, one of the shittiest things about, it, it happens in Limerick as well as Dublin, I'm not gonna blame it on Dublin, but uh, do you know when you get into a fucking taxi, right, and the taxi driver is Irish, and you're kind of going, all right, how long before he says something racist? <laughs> and I'd managed to get into a taxi up in Dublin, and it was like a 10-minute journey, and your man hadn't said one racist thing, and I was like, great. And then, <laughs> it was early in the morning, and all the seagulls were all over the streets, right? And he goes, those fucking seagulls, and I'm like, yeah, I know, man. It's all the foreigners. <laughs> I'm like, I'm sorry, what? All the foreigners with their takeaways. You see, all the foreigners have takeaways and the seagulls are there because of them. Consistency. Couldn't believe it. Consistent, yeah. yeah. You mentioned there about um, 
there's some species that you reckon are in the country, but you don't know yet. What, what do you think there? Yeah, because uh, in the UK and a lot of port towns, there's uh, European scorpion species out there. And we're a port town. We still are, you know. So there's lots of, especially around Guinness and, and the walls along the, the Liffey there and down at the docks where the, the, the Point Theatre is. Um, there's a lot of traffic that goes through there. And, uh, you know, that's the sort of stuff. If I was going for a, a wander, I'd be there with a, a UV light just to, because scorpions glow in the dark under mm -hmm. a UV. So you kind of take a wander down there once a year or something like that, have a look around, just to see if anything's there. If you don't find the scorpions themselves, they molt their skin and the skin still mm -hmm. glows in the dark. So, you know, and it's kind what of like- What do these scorpions thing. look like? They look just like mini scorpions. They're just like, they're, they're, if you're going to, to, you've probably seen them in, in pools and stuff when you're in Spain or Portugal. Mm -hmm. They're about that size, that's as big as they get, but they're just the tail, the pincers, same thing. And like, this is what I'd like to know as well. So that's bad news. If you that's bad news if you find them. You don't Are know. Are you excited? I'm, I'm excited. Like, yeah. yeah, that's what I'm wondering. You're you're going down there like taking time out of your afternoon with your fucking UV lights. <laughs> Effectively looking for bad news, but at the same time you're you're thrilled. You're thrilled by this. Yeah, yeah. It's a sad existence, isn't it? But um but I mean, like, when you're saying is it bad news, is it not bad news? Well, look half our native fauna that we're so f familiar with okay. isn't Irish. The hedgehogs were brought over for a snack, and they just got out, and they, they started... What? The Normans brought them over for food. Yeah. Are you fucking serious? 100% serious, yeah. That was a delicacy to them, so they were breeding them, and then hedgehogs being hedgehogs, they got out, and they started... And now we love hedgehogs. Now we love no. hedgehogs, and, we, like, and rightly so. So, so mean, hedgehogs came here, a bit like the Normans, actually. <laughs> because in fairness, the Normans were grand. They became more Irish than the Irish. Yeah. Anyone who's called Fitzsimon, Fitzwilliam, you're half Norman. Mm -hmm. But uh, So the hedgehogs came here, and they were fine. They didn't fuck any shit up. They were... Not to, I mean, they're, good, they're an introduced species as opposed to an invasive one. Now, rabbits could be considered an invasive species. So rabbits aren't Irish. And they do have a detrimental effect on our, our hares, who are Irish. What do they do? They compete for food? They compete for food and they spread mixed mitosis, stuff like that. Ah, you know what yeah, I mean? Okay. So, so, you know, it, it, that's kind of two examples of, of you know, introduced, introduced as opposed to invasive. Invasive is the false widow, where they're kind of spreading out everywhere and they're munching, like the lads up in Galway discovered they're munching on our Irish spiders. On the lizards, yeah. And, and the lizards, yeah, we found them. Because there's not a lot of Irish lizards. Yeah, and yeah. And now the we, we widows are eating them. We discovered them eating small bay, not now bearded dragons or anything like that, but like small little lizards. Um, and they found them in England eating shrews and uh, bats. Didn't they get a shrew and didn't they lift his body Lifted up? it up, yeah. yeah. But they used the kind of... Uh, kind of bungee cord silk that they pull these little animals. They'll eat snakes. They'll do, they're mad, mad yokes there. Brilliant, brilliant. Really impressive creatures. I sound like a man from Alien. But they are, they are impressive creatures if you look. You have to admire them because they got this little niche in this cold country far away from the, where they came from, Madeira. And now they're here and they're having a great time. So, and they're kind of slowly evolving to get used to the cold and creeping away from human habitation. Wow, really? Yeah. Yeah, I found him in, I was doing a biodiversity survey of Mickey D's gaff in the Phoenix Park, and we found steatoda there in the woodland, like, and that was a big deal, because they were away from the house. Because I first started hearing about false widows, we'll say, 10 years ago, yeah. and my understanding is that they would come into your house because they're from Madeira, so they want yeah. something warmer. Yeah. 
now they're in the wild. Yeah, and the thing about it is because they reproduce so rapidly, they have hundreds of babies, you're going to have that kind of evolutionary arms race within themselves where the, where the ones that are more, uh, you know, adaptable and, and hardy towards the cold, cold they'll survive. So then you'll get them getting hardier and hardier over generations. I'd nearly prefer them in my house, biting my toe. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. With all due respect, than yeah. having them in the forest yeah. going at the natural... That's, and that's why it's great that people are actually looking at them and, and studying them and not just taking it for granted. That are grand, they seem okay. You know, it's not always the case. But at the end, Collie, right, is like at some point, someone might have to go, we need to do something about these. There's nothing you can do about but, these. But you know what I mean? Do you not, like, bring in a, a gorilla? <laughs> or, or do, do you know what I mean? Like... <laughs> There's one species that isn't doing well, so you go, well, let's bring in its predator and see how that goes. Yeah, but then you're getting into the old woman who swallowed the fly territory, and, you know, you keep putting in stuff, and where do you stop? So, I mean, like, with the steel toad, with the false widows, the best thing to do is, uh, all we can do is hope that our native wildlife will adapt to them and start to be able to they become to hedgehogs. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um... I need to know about these turtles, man. Are they, like, are they out? Is it only Dublin? No, I mean, like, people have done... They're, like, that size. No, big, big one. No, yellow, oh. bit, yellow, bit, yellow oh. sliders will get that size. The females get huge. And didn't Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles start this? Uh, certainly Yeah. Did. No, that's for real. No one gave a fuck about them in the 70s. And then Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles came out in the 90s, and everyone wanted these as pets, yeah. and it started in America first. Yeah. And now we have, we're dealing with it. We're dealing with it everywhere in the world. You go to any Spain, Portugal, Italy, go over to Southeast Asia, and you're going to see American turbans and like red ear sliders. I've seen turbans They're in Spain. everywhere. They're everywhere. They're just, and like in Spain, they're breeding. So it's an even bigger impact on, on, on native wildlife. They're not breeding here. Not at the moment that we know of. So this. every terrapin that you might see down by the docks is something that was a pet. So, so they, it they, is going to die. It's like a neutered cat. Well, you see, some of them do well, some of them don't. Some of them, it's a very long years of starving to death slowly, which mm. is awful for any animal. Of course, yeah. So, like, we have a pond in my garden that I built for rescued terpens. Now, I'm at maximum capacity at the moment, you know what I mean? <laughs> Teenage mutant ninja monsters there eat me out of house and home. But, um, like, we have loads of them, and people are still ringing me up and going... Can you take a terpen? I've, it's too big for the tank. It's, it, it's crazy. It really is. And it's again, though, it, that goes back to what we were talking about earlier on. It's like if you're going to get a pet at that size, a cute little, a, a little turtle, and and put it in a bowl, that thing's going to be half the size of the table in a few years. And you, you want to be prepared for that. You want to have a heated pond. You want to have a great filta- filtration system. But people don't think about that. They just think of like right now. And I think. That kind of response. And the great thing is there's some brilliant pet shops around now, like Reptile Haven. I'd like to know your, your, your opinion on pet shops. Uh, well, Actually, th- I walked past that on the way to the Viking Museum, yeah. Yeah, Reptile Haven. So, that's around the corner. And then the Shauna's Pet Shop, which is across on the other side of the Keys. And they're just two examples of ethical pet shops. But there's they, other crowds who... Like, there was a place in Limerick, it was one of the franchise places. <laughs> and they sell fucking nothing now. Because I've gone in there, they sell nothing... Because a lady inside there got a rare disease off a parrot. <laughs> and she, and she, like, she nearly died. Like, she got a, they paid out a couple of million to her. Like, it really fucked her life up. Mm. 
Yeah. Um, and they just, they're, they're just a shop now with nothing in there, only photographs of dogs and food, but they're not selling any. They're just like, we're out of this game. Empty cages, empty everything after the parrot incident. And as, as sad as I am for that woman, I'm happier for the animals because, you know It's what I mean? the big shops the that big you're not... You're not they don't give a damn. It's just about getting product in and getting it out at that markup. Okay. And you don't want that. You Whereas know it's I mean? the small local mm -hmm. pet shop with the person who's, I actually, I'm in this business yeah, I, I fucking love it. I won't sell you this unless you send me a photograph of your setup. Wow. A video of it, not just a photograph, like a video showing this is my house, this is where so I So like live. the lads in Reptile Haven are like, I've got a python here, I need to know who the fuck you are. Mm-hmm. Wow. And, and, and Sean is very, very like that as well. And I, I really, and really... that off his own back. Yeah, she is. Yeah, yeah. It's, 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 or so it's, she is. It's, it's really good, and it's great to see. Um, but legislation should be kind of brought in, and not like legislation, because some people freak out. It's like, oh, government, tell me what to do. It's not. The government has your dog license. They should have a cat license as well, as far as I'm concerned. But like, He's got a big problem with cats. I have. Yeah. <laughs> But I mean, it's it, again down to like just responsible ownership and and uh, caring for the animals and giving them a life that's that's good, stress free. They're happy out. There's no predators and they're not sitting in their own crap all day. So mm -hmm. you know, and I don't think that's too much to ask. And anybody who genuinely cares about animals, I don't think they really mind. Because um, I, I did ask you before what the most dangerous invasive species was in the country, and you said straight out it's fucking cats. Cats, cats for wildlife, yeah. So, I mean, cats are devastating to wildlife all over the country. And, um, you know, even your cat, if it's never brought anything back to the house, that doesn't mean it's not out at night. That's the real, that's the, you said that the last time as well. No, like they, you they think your cat is sound. It's like, you don't know what it gets up to. Yeah. <laughs> yep. It's, um, it, it really is. It, you know, when they scrub at animals and if an animal gets away, like Kildare Wildlife Rescue are a great group. Uh, check them out online, a uh, great group of people. And they, they deal with a lot of um, cat injuries. So it would be like a board with a scrub. But the thing about it is there's bacteria in those claws that's specifically designed to injure the animals mm -hmm. and to spread and to cause infection. And these animals will die regardless of, mm -hmm. oh, I caught, I caught my cat with a blackboard, but I let it go. The blackboard's fucked. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? So... Um, in, a, in New Zealand now and in Australia, I think they're bringing in some legislation. A lot of people have catteries where, where it's like basically a big board cage attached to your I've cat. I've seen those, yeah. And the cats have a great time. And it extends the life of your cat because it's not getting run over by the milkman. Mm -hmm. So, mm -hmm. you know what I mean? It's, it's good for the cat. They're not as stressed. You don't get strays all over the place. It's just a simple thing you can do. And I always encourage people, I don't judge anybody who has a cat because it's only recently we've discovered how how much effect they're having on wildlife. But like anyone who's getting a new kitten should definitely be keeping it indoors, keeping it as an mm -hmm. indoor cat with entertainment or build a cat refer. I don't think that's too much to ask, uh, you know what I mean? To, to, to let, you know, other wild creatures around get on with their life and not be dealing with a, with a giant monster that they've never seen before, you know? Because our robins and our sparrows, they're like, I don't know what the fuck this thing is. That's it, you know? Young boards, fledgling boards are just kind of, they're getting nailed by these creatures that shouldn't be here, basically, you know? So um, I'm just going to check the questions in case, because I know it's a good podcast when I never have to consult the sheet. I want, because I, I got so many amazing questions from fucking from the internet. Um, oh, I've only got a couple to... 
All right, here's here's actually this one is from me that I put in here. <laughs> it's just it's really silly. It's really silly, right? But I just need to know it. Like, if you just like build a pond out your back garden, right? Yeah. And then like fish appear. Yeah. Where the fuck did they come from? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Cause it'll happen, won't this? Yeah, a lot of time, especially with like a stickleback perch. Where the Roach. fuck are they coming from? <laughs> how, how, how does a fish get into a bit of water that you just leave there for long enough? Mr. Robin, Mr. Mr. Blackboard goes down to another pond where a fish has been spawning in the shallows. Goes down, has a bat. And the spawn or the, the eggs of the fish are sticky. And he flies off. Oh my and God. And it's nice and moist. And he goes down to another waterway to have a drink. And one or two of the eggs fall off. Natural colonization. And that's, so that's one of the supposed to yeah. work. That's what, that's, wow. It's mad. Nature's crazy. You know, if you get your eye into it, you read up about it, like, this, these, are, these are really cool ways of, of you know, animals arriving and at your door. have you had a, because the new gaff that you have in Wicklow now, you've got a lot more space than you had when you were living in, in yeah. was it Crumlin you were living in? I, was, I, was, I grew in up Tala. in I live in Tala, yeah. And I've seen you with your little pans out the back garden. Yeah. Have you had fish just appearing? Not yes. yet, because, um, yeah, I haven't. And if I did see sticklebacks or something like that, in, I, I would try and get them out as quickly as possible. Okay. Uh, because I'm trying to bump up amphibian numbers in my area. And amphibians and fish don't mix, because fish will make lunch out of all the tadpoles, okay. which brings the numbers down. So, so you your pans... How big are they actually? So I've got a big massive one which is nine foot by nine and four foot deep. Then I've got 12 other ones varying from like a scrape, we call it a scrape, which would be about the size of this. But I basically put a liner in and then I put the, t the sods of the turf back on top of it. Mm -hmm. And it fills up with water. That's the most productive pond for frog spawn. It's just like a big jelly plate at the moment. It's crazy because they love that. So the Irish frog is ran a temperament, which means it's the, the, the Latin word for uh, temporary frog because they show up in spring and then disappear. Mm -hmm. That's why they call them the temporary frog. And they love these kind of ephemeral ponds that form in wetlands and dry out over the summer for two reasons. The tadpoles develop quicker when it's warmer. Mm -hmm. So they're already out swimming now, even though it's been chilly enough in the smaller ponds. And that gives them a head start also. So less water means it heats up. It heats up quicker. Okay. And they get a head start on the other the other guys in the, in the bigger ponds and lakes. And then ponds, when they dry out, which they tend to do, that kills off all the predators like dragonfly lava, great water diving beetles, all the stuff that would munch on, on the tadpoles. So they're really smart. Like they're using these, they're still spawning the big pond as well and other areas, but they tend to gravitate towards this. So you're just giving them different real estate and it's fascinating to see them use it, you know? It's really cool. What would you recommend to, to everybody out here? with whatever, whatever they have? If you're fortunate enough to have a little bit of land in your garden, you, you, my passion is, is obviously trying to give uh, the, the fa fauna that live in, in ponds a place to go because we're desperately short, especially in urban areas, especially in new housing estates and stuff like that. And, and people think of a pond, they think it has to be some mad thing, you're digging all day and you know, you're, you're, you're stressing yourself, you're, you're ruining your good patio. It doesn't have to be that way. You can get a, you know, the trays you slide under your bed for your shoes, mm -hmm. the big plastic ones. You can get a meter by 
meter one of them, a big square one. Pop it down the ground, make sure it's level, build up all around it with bricks and moss or, or logs so that there's a way of an animal to get into it and some rocks on the other side of it so they can get back out. Fill it with water. If you can get some native plants from your local pond or your local uh, canal, some oxygenating plants, throw them in and just sit back. And I swear to God, you won't be disappointed. Particularly if you've got young relatives, young kids, it's magic. And it's magic for kids of all ages, but uh, it really is. It's, a, it's, a, it's such a simple thing you can do, really effective. If you don't get frogs or newts, you're definitely gonna get bees coming down to drink out mm -hmm. because there's no, there's not many concrete jungles, you know, with not many water sources for them. Um, you'll get dragonflies and, and all sorts of creatures showing up. You'll get midges that will land in the pond, have their, have their babies. They'll go off into the air. Then you'll get bats around your house flying over the pond, which is amazing. Like when we were living in Tala, my neighbors, when I first pointed out that the bats were coming on their nightly route to hunt, would be flying along. They'd stop off at the Ennis's for a bit of a snack and they'd go off and all the neighbours would be out looking at going, you know, it's amazing. We'd be out with back detectors giving it, uh, you know, it's just, it's amazing what a small step like that can do to increase biodiversity, give nature a little bit of a break. Uh, on top of that, if you have the space, what you want to do is create a, you know, several different habitats together, a mosaic of habitats. So if you have the small water body in and you put a tree, a native tree in there, hazel or whatever, and you leave a bit of a mess for nature. Now I'm not talking about wrecking your whole garden. You can have a lovely garden that's wildlife friendly. You can have a pile of logs there that's, you know, stacked up neatly and just let it rot down. You get your solitary wasps. And you get the, more the solitary bees, the solitary wasps yeah. coming in, amazing. Stuff like that, it's just so simple, so effective and making a difference is giving animals a place to go. I mean, like, we've all picked up a bin bag, we've, or your wheelie bin, that you've left yeah. outside in the garden for a couple of days and found a slug, a worm, a couple of wood lice under it. They're looking for a home. That's all they're doing. They're looking for somewhere damp and moist. Easy for you to create. It was so easy for you to create and doesn't have to cost a fortune. It, mm -hmm. It's effective, active conservation. On a, on a small level, I'm not going to lie, the co big corporations all that have to pull their own weight but for, your, for what you can do physically, that's more than just doing recycling and, and, and the usual mm -hmm. malarkey, you can do this. And I think it's, uh, it's well worth trying, and I think you all get a great buzz out of it, really do. Um, then just, again, one more basic question. So if someone is in, they're in a housing estate, they do this, tiny little plastic pond, right? And they're the only person doing it. How does the frog end up in there? And how does the frog know? What, like, what, what's, what's that, how? <laughs> they have a great sense of smell for, for, for new water bodies, especially if it's a dry patch, like if it's really warm. They'll be kind of smelling algae and, and standing water and they'll know to go So back. whatever, so you leave this pond there for a month or whatever, the, uh, whatever hormones or smells come off the natural shit in this pond, yeah, Mr. Frog is, is miles away and he's like, yeah, yeah. Wow. The ability to find it. And, and like, you could have, there's historical introductions of ponds into all these neighborhoods around. Uh, I, found, uh, I found my mate bought a gaff down at the Walkerstown walk roundabout. Yeah. 
I love that about Ireland. That fucking <laughs> roundabout gets a... <laughs> that doesn't happen in England. That's just us. Right beside one of my favourite pubs, the Cherry Tree. Shout out to them. Yeah. <laughs> but, um, so so he, he sent me a video and he's like, what do you think of the house? And I was like, yeah, it looks really cool. And he goes, wait, you see this? He walked out into the garden. There's two ponds there full of frog spawn. I was wow. like, buy it, buy it now. I don't care how much it costs, <laughs> buy that. So he's like, yeah. So it, it, like, there's a population that's been there forever. Now, if somebody had bought a, a house further down, stuck the pond in, you're guaranteed to get recruitment from one area to another. Mm -hmm. Then if somebody else does it, you're gonna get them moving along. And you're giving them more of a home. It, they're there, they're just looking for somewhere to go. All these creatures are there and we've moved in but there's no reason we can't get along together and be, you know, coexist. This plastic lawn bullshit that people are getting into, um, no offense to anyone who's done it, but you're, you're, you're cheating yourself and your, and your family. I know it's easy to maintain and all that, but there's ways of doing gardening that is great for your mental health, it's great for nature, it's great for, you know, all these things that, that you know, when you go out and you sit in your plastic lawn once, well, uh, once every, month in our weather. You don't get that satisfaction that you do when you go out and you see some flowers blooming. You're the all garden and tell man. You used to have videos of us. Yeah. It was yeah. just a small garden. Hopping, and hopping with wildlife. You three or four different ponds, but it was aesthetically beautiful. Yeah. You had it planned so that this was, I was like, I want to sit in this garden and yeah. it's fully wild, but you'd planned it out to be gorgeous. So it was as gorgeous as any rockery or anything you could get down in the garden center, yeah. but it was native and helping biodiversity. Yeah, it's, it's just take a little bit of plan. There's loads of inspiration out there. You know, people love Lord of the Rings. Think of that your garden is like yeah. one of those, one of those fan fancy programs where it's like you can make that little place for you to go, for your family to go and enjoy as well. And it's so much more. It's that air you were talking about when you're sitting now, like I sit in my mate's gardens who are just dead. And the noise, man. I'm, I, I, I'm talking about four, like four or five feet of meadow that I have out my back garden. In the summertime, I'm listening to crickets. Yeah, and you're getting that and fresh never air. heard them before. <laughs> the fresh air off it, that just, it just... And the smells, mm. the smells of native Irish wildflower. And, and watching the seasons torn. That's a thing that people don't do anymore. You don't get to see the seasons torn. You see certain flowers are coming up at certain times. Certain animals are arriving at certain times. When the frogs start riding, I know the, the, uh, the miserable winter is over. That's a great sign for me. It gets, gets me out of those January blues. It's like, yes, you go. So, uh, yeah, I mean, you watch the whole season progress. And then you kind of get into winter and you're like, okay, this is grand now. Nature's going to shut down for a while and you can potter around the garden and do stuff like that. And it, it, you know, I think, I think it's a great disservice to yourself and also to the natural world to kind of miss out on that. I'm going to take one or two questions from the audience now, right? How's it going? What's uh, the crack? I have a couple of questions. Uh, not so serious one and a serious one. I uh, don't know which one you want me to ask first, but... The not so serious one is, do you reckon the English toes are trying an invasion on the Irish frogs? <laughs> well, yeah. <laughs> I mean, they are, like. I, I th they it's not with intent, like, but. <laughs> they, they could be Welsh or Scottish, so if they are, yeah. that's a lot better. You know what I mean? Um, Should we arm the frogs then to, to fight back? <laughs> Imagine that. Little, Little balaclavas on all the frogs. <laughs> 
What's but, the other uh, question? A, a serious question is, um, so I work for a big corporation, like probably a lot of people here, and, and you've given some good examples of what, what we could do as people, like, um, you know, uh, give, give these wildlife a, a chance in our back garden. But, but what, sh what fight should we be fighting with the corporations? What, what should I be saying to my boss? What, what should we do in the city centre to, to, to help this? Beehives on the roof. Get them to sponsor people who are doing active conservation for starters. That'd be great. Get involved in real stuff, not just uh, the, the greenwashing that a lot of big corporations get involved in. You know, um, to, 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 try and, to try and get them as well to show that they are being ethical in their own practices on a larger scale. You know, as an employee, call them out. And as like people who work everywhere, call out like I mean, we should be calling out the government for all the promises that they make about biodiversity. I mean, I, I don't know many biodiversity conferences I've gone to with my colleagues, and we're promised the world and the stars, and it never comes true because they don't feel the pressure on them. You know what mm -hmm. I mean? Um, so, so that's that's what I'd advise you. I to think do. as well. Um Calling out your local county council this summer when they're like when they're cutting down hedgerows, um, if they're mowing over a roundabout instead of leaving it for the bees, mm -hmm. these small little things, uh, putting it on social media and shaming them, yeah, that does work. One little suggestion, just, or sorry, idea that came into my head there. So when you were speaking there about what what can you say to your boss, what would you think of this for an idea, right? So do you know the way like? At a corporation, you'll have your team-building exercises. They might take it to a fucking bouncy castle or playing Quasar. I don't know. I don't have a real job. But you know what I mean? They, they'll do this shit. Team-building day. What if, like, we're going to start a, a pan-building society? What if it's the little... Co instead of going for beers, it's like... Why doesn't the company go, there's an area of land, and that was a team-building exercise. They're going to bring you in, yeah, it's and then happened. it's like... It's happened a couple of times. Is that happening already? It's happened already, and it's... Can you, you put know, that into better words than I put it? Yes. Yeah, so what, what is that? What's it called? So they, basi they basically call me out, and I do a PowerPoint presentation. I show them how you go about it outside, and then everybody goes home and hopefully, hopefully does it. And it, it's been really good, and it's, that's when I kind of say, well, like, this is cool. And they're not doing it for kudos. It's a very private thing. It's just for the em the employees. It's it seems like it's come from a, a genuine place. And what about the use of the roofs? What if the building is an office block? Like, yeah, what can you do with the? Because in Limerick, um, there's one organisation in Limerick, right? And there's loads of beehives on the roofs of buildings that no one knows nothing about, but they're there. Mm. In Cork, there's the rooftop farm. It's this one building, and it's there's a restaurant below, but all the food is grown on the roof, like. It's good. It's good. It's good to have. You have to realise, though, with bees and beehives, that they're they're the bee uh, equivalent of cows. So we might have too many bees. <laughs> we might have too many, you know, bees that are honey bees. Okay. We, we need to look after our own native species. Little bees, solitary you know, bees, the solitary lads bees, that want to go into wood. And we've, we've loads of species of those. And a bee hotel, man. I bought a bee hotel for a fiver. You know the ones, yeah, that made wood out of bamboo. I left it out my back garden, and like within two weeks, I'm seeing insects I've never seen. Yeah, little bees living on their own, making cocoons inside there. I couldn't believe it. Um, and we, we did a thing in UCD where we were trying out different bee hotels to see which ones were effective. And it's surprising how I'm not going to spoil their their research, but it, yeah, it was pretty effective. It was really, really good. So I need to know what the fuck that is. Now it's obviously. <laughs> <something big. laughs> 
Aliens have been coming to <laughs> Earth all along in the form of solitary bees. The rooftops as well. I mean, imagine they put like meadows on rooftops. That's what I'm thinking. Meadows on a rooftop. Meadows on rooftops. Who says you can't have ponds and meadows on a rooftop? There's loads of weeds growing on rooftops anyway. Yeah. If you go up on the rooftops, you know, the Trinity was laughed at because they kind of put the meadows in the the front. And it was a very symbolic thing as well. But I'm telling you now, I I obviously work there and I'm, as you said, looking at bugs and stuff uh, all the time and the amount of beetles and stuff I'd never seen in Trinity in 20 years working there that showed up in this the heart of the city brought bats right back into the college that were coming in to feed it, it really was effective you know it was so good easy to do it replenishes itself you could stick them all over the roofs and certain areas and and, and just uh you know, again, give nature a little ha- helping hand in a concrete jungle. And the thing is, is you, you don't know what that does. Like, the example I always think of is when they brought wolves back into Yellowstone. Yeah, yeah. They brought wolves back into Yellowstone in America, and it ended up improving the salmon, was it? Yeah, so they, changed, I, they, they changed, like, the, the, uh, the, the amount of deer that would be feeding on. So I think what happened was, so they brought wolves in, and everyone was like, that's a bad idea. Why do you want wolves? But the wolves came back in. The deer, because there was no wolves, had turned into lazy bastards for like 100 years. So deer weren't moving around anymore. They were just sitting around, standing there, eating grass. But because the deer weren't moving, they were fucking up the riverbed. Their hooves were fucking up the riverbed. And they were eating all the saplings. And they weren't moving all yeah. the areas. And, and numbers started going up. So, like, wolves... And there was loads of deer. Yeah. Wolves. And then they got scared by the wolves. Yeah, and wolves would shift them and move them off and give... You know, I mean... Uh, we have the same issue in Ireland. I mean, like, our, we have so many deer in this country, and sheep as well, that are just any sapling, any oak tree or native tree that's trying to get a, a, a foothold here is just munched. I was talking to Owen Dalton yeah, he's recently. Amazing so there's a fella called Owen Dalton and he's, he has a, a rainforest, an Irish rainforest down in Cork. He wants to bring back the native lynx, mm. which is an ancient Irish wild cat, so that it'll kill the deer. Now, he's yeah. a bit of a mad fucker, but like... <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And it's difficult to look at something like that, a project like that, because I know a lot of conservation people are talking about it, but like, we can't look after the animals we have now. Mm-hmm. How are we supposed to bring in a lynx? Every That's fecking, a good point. Every, every feckin' eagle we release, beautiful yeah. creatures, is getting poisoned. Yeah. It's, it's mental. Um, it's very frustrating. So we need to kind of change our attitudes towards nature before we start kind of bringing in uh, species, which we should do. We should reintroduce animals that, you know, were here long ago. Wolves were once a big deal here. Yeah, until but I mean, where are you going to put a wolf? You could put it down in Kerry National Park and all it will eat with tourists, you know what I mean? So, <laughs> it, 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 they just haven't got the land to roam yeah, around. Yeah. You know, you could do it in Scotland and places like that. But, um, and Scotland has fenced Scotland's off. Scotland's amazing at this shit, apparently. They've fenced off areas and you just see it in 15 years just coming back to life. Like, we all think, you know when you drive up over the mountains and you're saying how beautiful our, our countryside is? But it's kind of heartbreaking if you're into ecology, if you're into what 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 it should look like. We should have see, see, um, spruce trees and, and 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 like massive rainforests all across our land, and all we have is heather. And then what? More than that, they set it on fire every year. Yeah. They burn the land. So anything that was eking out a living in there is is burnt up, and nobody does a damn thing about it. Now it's starting. The snowball is starting to roll where people are saying. Why are you sitting? Because I'm telling you down the line, and mark my words, someone's house is going to go up. 
Mm -hmm. And then maybe people will start to go, what are you doing setting fire to the land every year? What do you think of the idea of going to farmers and then giving the farmers money to go stay the fuck away from that part of your land? Just leave it be and leave it be wild and we'll pay you. Yeah, but I mean, listen, you catch more flies with honey than vinegar, you know, and, and, and demonizing. <laughs> We've got big honey is in the, in the building. <laughs> <laughs> the honey lobbyists are here. Check later on. Yeah, that's it now. But, but, but uh, look, pe people tend to demonize farmers. That's terrible as well. Because they are the custodians of the countryside. Yeah. And, like, calling them all the names and isolating them away from... Calling them Colchies, Dublin. <laughs> but but, but I'm, I'm talking about like environmental groups that really go hard at the farmers. You're just creating a void and you're never going to work together. Mm -hmm. Incentivise them. Teach them how to do it. They need training. Yeah, like, and then uh, put out so many farmers that are mad to do it. But they get punished by the existing laws because... They put in a wetland in their in their area, like it's ridiculous. What do you mean by that? No, so so some so farmer they, might decide I'm doing a big wetland. Yeah, here. and then they'll they'll mark out the the amount of land he should be using for whatever crop or whatever animal, and they'll say, well, that's that's useless land, even though it's biodiversity biodiversity rich, and great for nature, it's oh, just written off. That. So his subsidies or whatever go down. I didn't uh, know that. Yeah, it's it's. Stupid. And that is to, what, to, what like, do we need to do to change that? Just pay farmers and say, listen, will you let half that field go? And he'll go, less work for me. Because they're already that. doing it with beef and shit anyway. They're already getting money anyway. 100%. I mean, but it is important. You know, they're not the enemy. They're just people who want to make a living. And if you make it uh, worthwhile for them to put nature back in, as opposed to punishing them for doing it, mm -hmm. that just makes absolute sense to me. I'm going to take a question from up here. Unless you don't have one and then I won't ask. There's plenty. Of, can, can, uh, was Hi. that? Oh yeah, what's the crack? Um, so basically we live in an apartment above a gala, like it's absolutely tiny and we have house plants and like I imagine they're doing absolutely nothing for anybody but mm -hmm. what can we do? We don't have a rooftop, we don't have anything. What little, like we literally have a three bed, mm -hmm. one kitchen, nothing. And that's a lot of people. Yeah. That's a lot of people. Yeah. Now, I'm guessing that a huge amount of people here don't have the luxury of a back garden. Yeah. So I just imagine our houseplants are doing nothing for nobody because they're just inside all the time. <laughs> they're doing something good for you. It's nice. <laughs> it's a great thing to have a bit of greenery around. Uh, you could, have you got local parks? Uh, yeah, there's, there's a pretty big one. Yeah. So yeah. make sure that your park is, and whoever's your local councillors, are actively making that park the most biodiversity rich park for you and your family and for everybody who lives around you and keep the pressure on them and call them out on the bullshit that blind boy was talking about earlier on that's a really good thing you can do uh, notice stuff that's going on uh, learn the rules about hedge cutting learn when you know uh, when they should be doing what they should be doing in regards to putting down wildflowers mowing if they're saying they're not going to mow for for nature Make sure they do it. And if they don't, call them out and put pressure on. Um, it's difficult when you're in apartment blocks like that. But that's the sort of stuff you need to be doing as a community and, 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 and looking out for the green spaces we have left. And if you can, try and encourage your local councils. I mean, we need allotments over here. That's another great thing mm -hmm. that people need. The UK are great for that. Like, 
they, there's loads of wasteland out there that families could set up to grow a bit of vegetables, to learn how to get their hands dirty. And allotments, you can combine them with biodiversity. You can put in board boxes around that will pick off the, the bugs that are going to eat your cabbages. You can put in ponds. You can do all the stuff we were talking about earlier on as a community. And there's so many of these spaces around. Um, there's a couple of organizations in Ireland that are pushing for it that you'll find on Twitter, just bang in Irish allotments and follow them and support them. Um, even if you have to hop in a car and drive a, a, a little bit to get down to, to work on one of them, it's fantastic. And it, it is a movement that we should be all getting behind. And I know, uh, I'm going to say this because it, it, it'll probably get you in trouble. But like I said, make those seed bombs. If you live in an apartment, m seriously, make them and fucking throw them everywhere. <laughs> If I can make pond bombs, I'd do it, so don't be worried yeah, about it. Yeah, just fucking throw them everywhere. Like, that's amazing. Over there, I don't know where it's going to land, but wherever it lands, nature will do its thing, and there's native Irish wildflowers. Just do it. The guards aren't going to say shit. They can't. You're throwing <laughs> dirt. <laughs> throwing dirt. Dissolves. It's like the bullet made out of meat. <laughs> All right. Um, that's time. I want to thank you so much, Kali, for coming here tonight. Always a pleasure, man. Thank um, you for having me. Thank you very much. That was, that was a wonderful, engaging, enjoyable chat. We had so much crack. Um, quite long, but you know, it's a podcast. You can listen to it whatever way you want. I think you'll agree it needed to be that length. I'd so much, I couldn't edit things out of that. I couldn't cut things out. We'd too much crack. I'll catch you next week. In the meantime... I don't even think I need to tell you to rub a dog or to wave at a swan. Just take on board some of the wonderful things that Collie said in that podcast and think about how we as individuals in our own lives can help to improve local biodiversity, not just for the benefit of insects and the benefit of wildlife, but to do so for our own well-being, our own mental health and a feeling of hope. And to do that on an individual level, but also be conscious of the collective level and the political level and putting pressure on fucking corporations or putting pressure on politicians and letting them know this shit matters this shit is important because it is okay I'll catch you next week dog bless Small details are big surfaces, tight corners are odd shapes, flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rustolium.